Man, okay. my viewers and my Twitch stream are right. I need to get a more comfortable chair. I've been sitting in this cheapo oh, folding no. chair for like two hours. Are you s still sitting in the folding chair? I am. You gotta get a better chair. I need an office chair. I need, I need a gaming chair. I need something. Hello. Welcome to Court Wreckers. Mish, I predict this podcast is going to end in three minutes. <laughs> I mean, based on our previous episodes, uh, I would absolutely take that bet. You, yeah, you think that's categorically not even close to being true? Not, not even a little bit. We have not been in the neighborhood of three minutes since the first episode. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold okay. on. Hold on. Before before I get into this, I'm going to can I can I do my opener mainly cuz I want to bust your chops a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Welcome to Turnabout Podcast. Next episode releasing on almost Christmas, which means it's not yet Christmas. Uh, I, you, <laughs> you know, hi. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Mish is probably going to be even later than that if I'm being <laughs> no. honest. <laughs> hi hi everybody welcome to the podcast i'm abby your prosecutor host and i'm mish your defense host and for perspective we are recording on october 19th 2022 <laughs> uh we have recorded the past two episodes over the past like three or four or whatever weeks and i've yeah. still not edited them so i'm kind of putting this in i'm putting this note in the this is going in the podcast it's going to be encased in amber for me to find in the year 2023, probably. <laughs> and then, and then I'll, I'll finally, uh, I'll finally upload it by like almost Christmas, but in the other direction, right? Yeah. As in after Christmas. You upload it like someday in the distant future when like podcasts are like an obsolete media format. People will look at it the same way we look at like eight tracks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll we'll be podcasting from a from a crystal orb that you conjure in the metaverse or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is gonna bless our podcast with um future energy. I don't know where we're going with this. I, I also don't know. Hey, so um let's talk about uh hold on. Game number one, uh case four, episode something day three trial <laughs> i don't know our numbering system confuses me what's this podcast about this is a podcast where we play an ace attorney game and then we talk about it what's that well ace attorney is a series of visual novels created by shu takumi uh based on the popular television series columbo follows okay. detective gumshoe as he goes around and solves cases in his trench coat okay now you're speaking my language all right it's a columbo cat we already did this bit in like episode not, not to, to jump ahead there was a scene where you uh talk to gumshoe like you go back to gourd lake later and you run into gumshoe and have this conversation and right as he's about to leave to go you know back to the police station he goes oh just one more thing and i knew it i was like oh my, oh god. my god this is totally intentional okay yep gumshoe columbo confirmed it yeah that i feel like is the last closed loop we needed for this game exactly case closed we solved it we solved it we could just stop right now <laughs> oh shoot the podcast did end in three minutes you were right 
There it is, the podcast. We're at three minutes and 42 seconds right now. We got him, baby. All right, bye, everyone. I'll talk to you later. Thank <laughs> bye, you everybody. to Recanti for making our uh, thumbnail art. Bye. Yeah, you, yeah, bye. Goodbye, everybody. I'm kidding. Yeah. All right, so today, we this is episode nine. We are covering case one four. This is yes. part C, where we will be covering the fourth and fifth part about of Turnabout Goodbyes. Yes. This is the second trial and the third investigation. And um, so we pick up in uh, courtroom number three. <laughs> the judge, you know, says uh, court is now in session for the trial of Mr. Miles Edgeworth. Phoenix Wright uh, says the defense is ready. And of course... Von Karma does his usual bit where he's like too good to even give you the time yeah. of day. He just doesn't say anything. <laughs> the judge kind of sheepishly tries to move on. He's like, well. He's being difficult for absolutely no reason. He's so like dickish. <laughs> he really is. I, I feel like he he sort of is like, I don't know, a, a more amplified version of what Miles tries to do. Yeah. It's kind of like what Miles tries to do, but doesn't have you know, the the force of will to actually do, right? Yeah. To be this much of a sort of petulant dickhead in court. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of yeah. funny, right? Because it's like, <laughs> I feel like Miles Edgeworth like had that reputation, but then when he actually gets in the courtroom, the witnesses just kind of walk all over him and he like can't right. even get them to like state their name. But then you have Von Karma who like has this reputation where, you know, he's never lost a case in like 40 years. But then like... I don't know, man. They keep saying he's such like a perfectionist. He's got like, you know, perfect preparation for his witnesses, you know, perfect like everything. But then it's like, I don't know, man. It's just like being rude to the judge, like part of your like perfect plan, because that seems like it's not going to help him. You know, I would say consideration and courteousness towards your fellow professionals is part of perfection. Yeah. So, you know, Von Karma, you're really falling short there. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, he he starts with a prediction. He yes. says a prediction. Today's trial will end three minutes from now, mm-hmm. which I kind of love this. Yeah. I, I love this as sort of an opener to the case. There, There's a sort of panache to it, right? He snaps his finger and he says it's going to end in three minutes. Yeah. There's drama to that. You know, it gives a good sort of framing to this case. It gives a character right at the start. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that. That was great. And, and it's setting up a, a joke that we're about to see uh, pretty soon. Yeah. And uh, so with that in mind, Von Karma kind of, you know, he, he starts moving the wheels and calls his first witness. Yeah. So so this is kind of funny. Um, he calls his first witness the uh, proprietor of the uh, the boat rental shop. This uh, Of old... the wet noodle. <laughs> yes. Well, as he introduced himself. But, but the funny thing is, um, you know, for like as intimidating as Von Karma is for as much like, you know, power creep they have where they try and make him like even more like badass and like untouchable than like Miles Edgeworth was. He also initially can't get this witness to say, you know, anything about himself. You've got, you know, the the old dude who they still refer to as uncle. He's just like asleep on the witness stand. <laughs> so finally, I think I think the way he wakes him up is by like snapping his fingers too, which is pretty funny. <laughs> so it's like they get to, you know, get some good mileage out of that. Um, you know, sprite animation and that like sound effect. So Von Karma snaps his fingers, wakes him up. You get like the whole, you know, animation that we've seen before where the witness is uh, sleeping. He's got like the little snot bubble coming out of his nose and then pops. So I thought that was a 
you know, that's the thing with all these visual novels, right? They have a kind of a limited number of like, you know, sprites. So they reuse them a lot. But I thought that was kind of a funny gag how like they, they had like the sleeping thing. And then Von Karma does his finger snap to wake him up. Um, I do love that when his bubble pops, it plays the um, like the gavel slam sound effect. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's very, I believe it's the gavel slam sound effect. And it's it's very funny because, you know, yeah. it's just funny, but it's also probably necessary as yeah. a way to save on, you know, cartridge space because they just recycled the sound effect. Yeah, I wonder if they made it, if they like added a new sound effect in the later ones. But you're playing in the original. Not, I shouldn't say original, but you're playing the DS version. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if maybe they, they remastered it or whatever, but... Um, this would be like a repeat of like... It'll be like in GoldenEye 64 when like they wanted to make the radar for the multiplayer screen, but they, they didn't have enough um, storage space left, I kid you not, to draw a new circle. So they like repurposed like the lid of like one of the barrels. Um, at least Holy that's the story shit. I heard. That's so funny. I love old video games because they just had to do shit like that. It is impressive the way what they were able to do with very limited uh, resources. I mean, this game is a good example of that. Yeah. But yeah, so anyway... Uh, the character we know as Uncle will not <laughs> state his name because he does not remember it. Yes. Uh, Von Karma clarifies that he really doesn't remember anything beyond the last few years. Therefore, he can't state his name to the court. So it's considered unimportant. And he goes. Well, hold, hold on. He go- you're, you're right that within the game, they consider it or the judge considers it unimportant. But I remember yeah. you have an opportunity to like, you know. Well, first of all, the guy introduced himself as the proprietor of the wet noodle uh, stand. And then he's like, oh, but I also rent boats, which like, first of all, it's like, wait, what? That's not actually like a restaurant. So this man is clearly confused. He's falling asleep in the witness stand. He can't remember his name. You know, you can object to this. And then Von Karma explains like, oh, he suffers memory loss and he doesn't remember anything that happened before the last, you know, couple of years. But because this incident that he supposedly witnessed, you know, happened pretty recently. Ah, oh, there's no problem. And it's like, uh, the judge, I mean, listen, this is like, every Ace Attorney game, like, the deck is very much stacked against you, so, like, I get it, but the judge seems very willing to accept the testimony from this witness who appears to be pretty unreliable. I don't know. Abby, did you have a problem with this? Uh, like, on the other hand, it's like, what other option do they really have? Right? It's yeah. like, we can't bless this man with better short-term memory or long-term memory for that matter. You know, it's like within a court of law, you don't necessarily get to choose who your witnesses are. Yeah. And, you know, as far as the court knows, this is one of the only people who was witness to this murder. So I guess it's the only, it's all we got to go on, you know? Yeah. Um, But you're right. I, I feel like there isn't even a, a, a like notional amount of scrutiny placed on his uh, ability to testify. Yeah. But whatever. His... Well, listen, whatever. This this ace attorney isn't based on the law or even reality. Or so, even reality. So forgive me for even questioning. <laughs> you know what? Let's just move on. Yeah. He doesn't remember his name. He doesn't know where he is. And he doesn't know what his job is. But sure, we can reliably let him testify to a fucking murder. Yeah. So, so we hear him out for his first cross-examination on the night of the murder. Yeah. So it's uh, six statements long. Um, I guess we can just go through it. It's pretty short. So he says it was the night of the 24th, um, just after midnight. Uh, I was in the restaurant where um, I rent boats. <laughs> Hesitation, as usual. 
Um, then I heard a bang. When I looked out the window, I saw a boat just floating in the lake. Then I heard another bang. Uh, just about then, the boat comes back to the shore, and a man walks by my window. Yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward testimony. Uh, pretty, pretty vague, right? So we're given the chance to either cross-examine or not cross-examine uh, Uncle for this testimony. And I'm pretty sure this is one of many choices you can make in the game that doesn't matter, right? Like you kind of get Mish, railroaded. Yeah. This is such a trend in this <laughs> specific trial. This sort of yeah. thing, you know, we've discussed this a lot at this point. Uh, yeah. Ace Attorney is a linear game and it gives you a lot of false choices to get you more invested in the story. Overall, I consider that a good thing. I think they're making the most of what they had. Yeah. However... In this trial specifically, there are a lot of dialogue choices where you are given the option to do something or yeah. not do something. Yeah. And no, no matter what you pick, you end up doing the thing anyway. So here you have the option to cross-examine or not cross-examine. Yeah. If you choose to cross-examine, you do it. If you choose yeah. to not cross-examine, Maya says, but you got to do it. And then you're like, okay, I guess I got to do it, right? Yeah, you you are truly railroaded, like you have no choice. Right. Now, I have decided to start something for this case that I call the insistence counter. Right. It oh. is the number of times... Are we going to do the Ace Attorney drinking game? <laughs> yes. The number of times in this case that the game gives you a yes-no option, <laughs> but gives you the yes option regardless. Yeah. That adds to the insistence counter. This is actually number two in the case. We had an option earlier to either raise an objection or let it slide when yeah. uh, Uncle was not giving his name. So yeah. this is number two. We'll we'll keep a little pin in this as we go on. Well, first of all, like this would be like Ace Attorney 101. Whenever they give you a choice, like listen, always be objecting. Hey, yeah, ABO, always be objecting. That that is that is literally how you advance the plot. I think don't actually take that advice, listeners. I think they they uh, throw a wrench in it later. There, I think there are later times where like no, take this advice, especially in your everyday life. Absolutely, always be objecting. Always be objecting. Always be raising questions. Actually, I kind of like this. Yeah, but yeah, I I did that a lot. Like I would, I, you know, I'm playing it on the Switch, so I would you know, save my game, and then I would make one of the choices, and then I would go back to my save file, and I'd make the other choice, and I'm like, what the heck was the point of that? Yeah. Yeah. No, for real. But yeah, I guess, I guess you know, it kind of yeah. gets you into the headspace of Phoenix, right? It gets you, you know, <laughs> it, you have to make a conscious decision, yeah. right, to, to make that leap. Like, I, from a pacing and narrative standpoint, sure, it's fine. They're doing yeah. what they can on a Game Boy Advance cartridge. <laughs> right. But yeah. So we're, we're, our insistence counter is currently at one. So th no matter what choice you make, it, this is where Von Karma throws his tantrum, right? Yes. So Von Karma, at this point, he, he throws a tantrum <laughs> because three minutes has passed. Yeah. And I, so I kind of found this a little like underwhelming, right? Because he starts out the case with his, his bold prediction. Yeah. This case will last three minutes. And I'm like, that's cool. Ooh, what's what's the whole scheme gonna be, right? Yeah, but his three minutes, his scheme falls apart because Phoenix insisted on a cross examination. Yeah, something that, as the defense attorney, he has the legal right to. Like, yeah. well, that that is what puts him over three minutes. Well, so you're right that it was um, underwhelming, and I would also add like the um, the disconnect between like how underwhelming it was and how over the top his reaction is. We see this, right. this is the first time we see this, you know, animation 
of Von Karma screaming. He's like, ah. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you okay, buddy? <laughs> the trial just started. He's like started. losing his mind. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, I mean, you know, another example of like this visual novel kind of reusing, you know, these sprites. But yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> it's just completely over the top reaction here that three minutes have passed. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I just figured like, Maybe, like, like I figured maybe he had like more of a, a way to accelerate things or whatever but I guess it's yeah. his way of putting pressure on the judge like I don't know I just expected him to pull a loaded gun at three minutes or something I don't know okay yeah. so 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 the judge says you know you you may cross-examine the witness and then you know we get into it so one thing I always do whenever we have these cross-examinations right it you know you have the opportunity to oppress any of the statements you get more details from the witness or if you see a contradiction, you can present a piece of evidence um, and find out if you were right. But when you, as you're in the cross-examination part, once you cycle through all their statements and you get to the end, they have, you know, some dialogue, which is, you know, usually Phoenix and whoever his kind of assistant at the time is, whether it's, you know, Mia or Maya or someone else, you know, on the stand. Um, and sometimes at that, you know what I'm talking about, right? After you go through all, like, the statements. Yeah. Um, I always do that and pay attention there because sometimes they'll like give you a hint. I actually kind of like this one. Um, I think Phoenix Wright just says, you know, if I know Von Karma, he spent time, you know, prepping this witness and it won't be easy to find any contradictions. I like that. And I'll tell you why. This might be making a big deal over nothing, but there are definitely examples where the Ace Attorney games, I feel like there's excessive handholding. They're like, hmm, that one statement sounded suspicious. I better press him. And it's like, no, let me figure it out. So so here, after all of this railroading, after all these false choices, they uh, actually let you cross-examine him with no guidance. And then you'll find out it probably doesn't even really matter anyway. But <laughs> Yeah. You generally, when you get your little um, conference, right, with your assistants yeah. at the end of a cross-examination, <laughs> it um, gives you a good guess at either... I need to progress by pressing or yeah. I need to progress by showing evidence. That That's generally the biggest thing your assistant will telegraph to you. Yeah. Um, and in this case, yeah, you know, she says something like it'll be hard to, or I, I think Phoenix thinks it, right? Yeah. That it's going to be hard to find contradictions. And you're like, okay, I probably need to press for this one. Yeah. So is that what you did? Did you just end up pressing every statement? No. So I, I try, what I try to do, right? is if I know th this is my order of operations during a cross-examination if I am pretty sure I know what to do yeah. I will I will do a contradiction step one right I will <laughs> present evidence step one if I'm pretty confident about it yeah. that is rarely the case then what I do is I press the most conspicuous options <laughs> to me right yeah whether it's based on you know, the way it's worded, if it's based on genre savviness or if it's based on how much I was actually paying attention to the case, I'll mm -hmm. press on the most conspicuous ones. Yeah. Usually that, you know, in typical Ace Attorney form, that'll get you an additional detail or an additional statement to press or whatever that lets you know, okay, this is the next relevant thing. Yeah. Um, and if that gets me nowhere, yeah, I press them all, baby. <laughs> See, this is interesting because now, now we're getting into some high level uh, Ace Attorney strats. Yes. Uh, I So I just press every statement in order. And even if I have like an inkling, like, oh, that seemed kind of suspicious. Um, I do it that way for a couple of reasons. One is I could be wrong. Sometimes this game will try and you know, misdirect you or whatever. But more than that, 
I just like to see all like the flavor text, even if it's not, uh, yeah. even if it's not like necessary to advance the plot. Sometimes you get some kind of funny like interactions, and of course, you know, since it's like a a linear game, you know, if you present evidence, you know, you object and you find the contradiction, you know, the story kind of moves on, and then you lose the opportunity to ever like go back and see all the dialogue. So that's generally what I do. A couple of exceptions to that general rule would be um, the rare cases in games where like. You know, it's one of those super like high stakes situations and the judge will be like, if you waste my time by pressing this irrelevant statement that I'm going to penalize you, then there, you know, you need to be a little more savvy. But then, uh, yeah, so that, that's exception number one. Exception number two is if we're about to record a podcast episode and I ain't got time to <laughs> listen to all of this, <laughs> then it's like, all right, we got to we got to move this along. Ain't got time for messing around today. You know, that is I, I, I will concede to that how much I plan on messing around with additional dialogue is dependent on how much of a hurry I'm in. Yeah, now I'm glad you're so, not alone on that. Yeah, that, I, I totally get you there. <laughs> now, for this one, it was pretty straightforward what you need to do pr- to get through the cross-examination. Yeah. You uh, you press Uncle on his uh, mention of a man walking by the window, <laughs> and then he, he pretty matter-of-factly adds that, like, yeah, the man who I saw walk by the window was the defendant, and also he was muttering, I can't believe he's dead. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. look good for a case. Before we go further into this, I do want to point out just one example of the completely optional flavor text that I thought was funny. If you press the statement, uh, I guess it's statement number two, um, where he says, I was in the restaurant, you know, as usual. Um, Phoenix will ask him, is there anyone that can verify that? And Uncle says... Well, I guess Polly could. Phoenix goes, that's not good enough for a court of law. Foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm sorry. Oh, that's that's good. I didn't catch that. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, you press him, you know, are you sure that it was the defendant you saw? And uh, in a weird moment of clarity, he's like, yeah, it was him. It was Edgeworth. I'm sure it was him. Yeah, I like the way you said that. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just like the way you said that, a rare moment of clarity, because I think, um, you know, as these characters are speaking, again, they reuse a lot of the same spray animations. But yeah, his entire face changed, and he looked like super serious when he said that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's um, it, it's a pretty bad-looking testimony, right? Yeah. And the judge seems convinced by this. And <laughs> uh, we do get, we get another tick to the yeah. insistence counter. Right. We can we can raise an objection or we can wait and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And um, if we do that, basically, Phoenix uh, reiterates that, hey, we already proved Edgeworth didn't fire the gun. So why yeah. are we so quick to hand down a verdict? Right. Mm-hmm. And Von Karma, this is kind of funny. It was such a twist in the first trial that yeah. uh, Edgeworth's fingerprints were uh, on the right hand. And the photograph mm-hmm. shows the man firing the gun with his left hand. Yeah. It's like a big contradiction. And now, a day later, Von Karma's just like, oh, yeah, he just wiped the gun. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> like, to yeah. me, it's so, like, that is that is what suspended the trial the day before. And now, 24 hours later, Von Karma's just like, hey, he just wiped the gun. Yeah. He just wiped it, it, you know? Like, I guess things like that are necessary to, like, move the plot along. But, yeah, when you point it out, when you say it like that, it's like... Yeah, this was such a big deal yesterday, and I guess nobody cares. I worked cares. so all... hard for that contradiction. Like, everyone in this courtroom has, like, goldfish memories. Like, they just... 
perspective forgot like, that like this was such a huge deal yesterday like i basically like, i bullied lotta heart on the stand for that contradiction and now now von karma's just like ah eh, yeah whatever yeah so immediately after that we get another tick to our insistence counter because oh, we, there, there's we one other raise... thing i want to point out uh, along yeah. this um insistence counter because i think this happens like basically back to back you get like two options to like raise an objection right away but there's some funny like, internal monologue here with Phoenix where he's saying, you know, you get this pretty damning statement where, um, you know, uncle is saying, it's like, oh, the man was muttering to himself. He said, I can't believe he's dead, which, you know, obviously looks very bad for our client. Yeah. But Phoenix has his internal monologue where he says, oh man, Von Karma, he lured me into cross-examining this witness so he could set me up for a fall. And it's like, did he? Because I, I knew like Von Karma has this reputation for, you know, being super prepared for everything. But like, he very much like wanted to end the trial. Like, did he lure you into the cross-examination or did you so, just choose to do the cross-examination? Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about that too. I right? feel like you're, I mean, the, Von Karma, he's very prepared in some ways. And I also think Phoenix is giving him too much credit here. The, this is some four-dimensional chess that shows up in this series sometimes. Well, where, listen, not to jump know, ahead, but wait until we get to the next episode. You'll see, like, the 64th-dimensional shoots right. and ladders. <laughs> but, sorry, <laughs> but go on. But, yeah, we do. We have this four-dimensional chess sometimes in Ace Attorney where, you know, our, our defense attorney of choice, whoever we're playing as, will yeah. suspect that the prosecution had lured them into revealing some sort of detail to the court, typically through... Uh, extracting a piece of information through cross-examination yeah. or through presenting a certain piece of evidence. You know, in this case, Phoenix suspects that Manfred von Karma lured him into pressing the information out of Uncle, yeah. into pressing the information that he saw Miles Edgeworth outside the boat shop. Yeah. Now, here's the thing that I don't understand. And like mm -hmm. I said, this is a trope. This shows up throughout these games, you know, a few yeah. times. Why would the prosecution have to do that? Why would Von Karma have to get Phoenix to press that information out of the witness? For, yeah. Like you're saying, A, it doesn't really make sense because it seems like Von Karma just wanted the trial to end. But yeah. B, he could just present that information himself. You know? Yeah. Because like, that's the he, thing. If he if could he just did... say, he could just be like, hey, hey, witness, who did you see outside the boat shop? Edgeworth? Yeah. Pretty wild, huh? Like... Yeah, because if he if Von Karma did set up this elaborate trap where he lured you into pressing the information, it's like, well, okay, there's, you know, a some percentage chance that you'll take this bait and get the witness to say it. But if the witness just says it, there's a hundred percent chance this information right. will come out. Like, I don't know, Von Karma, I don't think you're the genius strategist that Phoenix Wright thinks you are. Like when Von Karma's prepping uncle, just tell him to put that in his testimony. He could just say it like, yeah, so we're, we're in agreement. This whole thing was kind of silly, but it's one of many things that I'll give it a free pass because it's more dramatic and, you know, whatever, right. it's fine. And, and if if you, the player, just go along with Phoenix's inner monologue, it's like, whoa, that is four dimensional chess. We're dealing with someone really yeah. smart. Like, you know, it really makes Von Karma seem like conniving. But yeah. I, I'm pretty sure Phoenix is just wrong about that. Well, the other thing that another reason in this, I feel like, you know, they do this many times, right? Where, you know, they, you have to press the witness and additional information comes out and it's like, oh man, you like lured me into this trap. Another reason I think they might do that here is like, this was like the most unsatisfying cross-examination ever because 
you don't even get to like present any evidence. There like basically are no contradictions. Whereas, and I might be jumping too far ahead here, but we're about to see like the cross examination is kind of ends and then it's like i almost think yep. like the reason they did that to you know make you force you to press this statement and then he you know adds the testimony about the man like muttering ah, i can't believe he's dead i feel like they did that to create like the illusion of interactivity because <laughs> otherwise it you truly would have done like nothing here that is true yeah otherwise I, I guess from a gameplay standpoint it would just be the game saying hey we have another witness and you have to deal with that now yeah so I still absolutely love the Ace Attorney games. You know, the courtroom scenes are objectively more fun and more dramatic in general oh, yeah. than the um, investigation parts. This particular cross-examination, in my opinion, was a little unsatisfying. The, oh, the there, thing there is, was actually well, one good line coming up. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? We can pick apart these games yeah. and kind of talk about how the individual components don't make sense. <laughs> but like... I will say, for, for all of the silly things, if you do just sort of surrender yourself to the like story the game is weaving and yeah. just gloss over this shit, it's really effective. Yeah. But, yeah, so anyway. Oh, yeah, so, um, you know, we get that pretty damning statement. We get these, you know, false choices where we could, you know, raise an objection or not. Um, no, basically, no matter what you do... Um, Phoenix is ready to give up. He says, it's no good. There's nothing I can do. I did actually like this uh, line where Maya has like this one desperate plea where she's like, can you yeah. hear me, sis? Please. We really need like Mia's help. Uh, of course, Mia does not come through for us here. So, um, yeah. And Von Karma says I uh, three minutes was perhaps too high an expectation, uh, but 15 minutes isn't bad. <laughs> so, you know, right. the trial's about to end here. Um you know, the judge goes through his whole thing. I think this is the, the what the judge says next. I think it's the same dialogue that you actually see if you fail one yeah. of the trials by presenting. So, you know. so at this point, you know, we, we've we lost our counter evidence of the uh, lake photo of the murderer <laughs> firing the gun with his left hand. That is no longer valid evidence because he could have just wiped the gun. And yeah. now it all falls on uncle's testimony that he saw Miles at the lake. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. At this point, the judge is ready to just throw down a verdict, right? Yeah. After he hears uncle's testimony. Yeah. And I did like this touch uh, this touch in the case, right? Because we get dialogue from the judge where he hands down a guilty verdict on Miles Edgeworth. Yeah. And the, the dialogue, the animations, mm-hmm. everything, it is identical to when you fail a, a trial. Yeah. So, you know... It, when you run through all of your penalties in a in a uh, trial, all five penalties, you get a scene of the judge handing down a guilty verdict. Yeah. By this point, the player has probably experienced that at least once, mm-hmm. probably during Turnabout Samurai, I would say. That's when I had my first yeah. failure as a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it, it is, it's kind of jarring. It's kind of intense to see this scene play out yeah. on the critical path, right? Where... It, I, I guess part of the dialogue choices, right? Raise an objection, don't raise an objection. Yeah. It kind of does almost psych yourself out on a first playthrough where you're like, oh shit. Yeah. Like, did I actually, like, maybe I shouldn't have objected. Like, it does give you a brief moment of like, oh damn, like maybe <laughs> I did fuck up. Um, So yeah, he, he does. He hands on the guilty verdict. You see the text on the screen. He adjourns court. 
So I, I actually thought this was a pretty like effective kind of misdirection here because yeah, as you pointed out, it's it is truly identical to when you lose the game. It's like I was like, wait, what is this like game over? I feel a little bit conflicted because on the one hand, it was good to have you know exactly the same like animation and everything to make you think that you actually did fail. Um, but then, <laughs> uh, of course, who who shows up to save the day? But our good friend uh, Larry Butts and and the judge. There he is. The judge pretty quickly overturns his guilty verdict. Well, okay. So first of all, Larry Butts, you know, comes in doing his you know normal Larry Butts thing, like showing up just causing trouble being like oh you gotta listen to me i was there oh, he gives this whole info dump how he was there you know in the park the night of the murder and um von karma makes actually kind of a you know von karma as i've been saying he's a total dick he does make a little bit of a fair point when he goes the verdict has already been decided <laughs> it's too late but then the judge pretty quickly overturns his verdict and decides like well you know we need to uh hear out this witness and make sure that you know the court arrives the correct verdict or whatever the reason i feel conflicted about this I, I generally do think it was a effective you know like i keep saying like misdirection like making you think it was all over and then it wasn't the one thing i'm a little hesitant about or why i feel conf conflicted is it's like if it's that easy for the judge to just like change his mind about the guilty verdict it a little bit kills the suspense I don't know. Did you feel that way or am I just reading too much into this? I So really the thing that got me with this scene is how quickly the judge handed down a guilty ver verdict. Yeah. Right. Something we've talked about on this uh, podcast before is the characterization of the judge as a character. Right. Yeah. I feel that generally while he's represented as a sort of buffoonish character. Yeah, he's like comedy relief. <laughs> Right, he's he's used as a comic relief character. He's represented as sort of an old, out of touch guy. But like when it gets down to business, yeah, he really does care about the truth. Right, yeah. he really does care about handing down justice in an yeah. appropriate way. Right, he could be misdirected, he could be strung along, but like you know, when things don't seem right, he will dig into it. You know, he's yeah. overturned objections from the prosecution. He's you know, told people to shut up and let witnesses talk. Like, yeah, he usually hears people out. So to me, it actually felt uncharacteristic for him to hand down that guilty verdict in the first place. Yeah. You know, that he heard one testimony from a crazy coot and was like, yeah, I guess I'm good. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit hasty there. Uh, but I do think you're right. You know, the judge, I feel like um, it's kind of one example of this bigger idea that we see all the time in the Ace Attorney games where it's very good at like going back and forth between... Um, you know, the very lighthearted, silly, like comedy relief, you know, the characters with all their name puns, you know, like the banter between like Phoenix and Maya, just like, you know, cracking jokes, whatever. Um, you got Larry Butts with his, you know, silliness, but then occasionally being very serious where it's like, you know, characters do get murdered and when they're put on trial, it's like, geez, this person's, you know, life is on the line. <laughs> like they're going to prison unless I can, you know, find the right evidence here. So, um, yeah, it, I thought this actually was like a pretty uh, effective scene here. Like the first time I played, I was like, oh, shoot, like this is really like game over. Yeah. But yeah, so that that's kind of where I'm at with this is I, I think it was weird of him to hand down the guilty verdict in the first place. Yeah. But I actually do feel it's pretty in character for him to overturn it. Yeah. That that does seem consistent with the way that he is yeah. Um, since he is the judge. It's yeah. his courtroom and he kind of. 
he has demonstrated before that he will take charge of the courtroom yeah. when he needs to. Whether or not there is a legal precedent for just overturning your verdict like that. Well, listen, I mean, they're they're pretty loosey-goosey with the law in these games. Yeah. But the judge did have one kind of funny line here. Well, maybe not funny, but one that made me think where he said, um, the judge said, well, this is the first time something uh, like this has happened in my court. And I was like, is it? Because... There, you know, there are games that are, you know, prequels. There are games where they have, you know, flashbacks to previous trials. I feel like it's always the same judge, you know, with rare exception, like when they swap in uh, his Canadian friend. But it's like, is this the first time they've ever turned a verdict? I don't know. That's true. Listeners, if you if you know, if, the, if you can think of another example, uh, write in. You can tweet at us at Turnabout Podcast. We don't actually have a Twitter handle yet. We don't have a Twitter yeah, you could tweet at me or Mish, I think. It's yeah. in the show notes. Don't worry. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. I, no, actually, legitimately, I, I do want to know this. If there is a flashback case yeah. where a verdict is in, is interrupted Ugh. by an objection, yeah. tweet at us. I <laughs> want to know. Tell me which case it is. I've played all these games and I can't think of it. Is it, is it the one where you play as Mia? Does it happen there? Is it the one where you play as Gregory? Does it happen there? Is it the one where, uh, what's in the, I don't know. Is it any of those? Let me know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Larry storms into the courtroom and, uh, he says, Hey, you can't let my boy edgy be declared guilty. Yeah. I heard the gunshot and it was different from what I remember. That's yeah. his big revelation that what they are saying uh-huh. in court is not what he heard. Yeah. And he wants to testify about it. So there was one pretty funny line here where, um, you know, you think like it's all over, like the judge, you know, did declare a guilty verdict. Um, and then, you know, you have this like glimmer of hope where you have this new witness uh, show up saying, you know, this is different than what I remember. <laughs> and it's like Phoenix is like, oh, man, if only it wasn't Larry, he could make things even worse. And then Maya says he was he's like, Edgeworth has just declared guilty. Nick, it doesn't get any worse than this. I thought that was kind of funny. I know. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I honestly love that attitude from Maya because it's like, you know what? She's not wrong. We've literally got nothing to lose at this point. What are they going to do? Like declare like double guilty? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, super guilty. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Not only did he murder, not only did he murder Robert Hammond, but he was also littering. (laughs) Oh, no. Jaywalking. (laughs) He was jaywalking and. In Gord Lake, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is he, Jesus, <laughs> walking on water? Um, I mean, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so the judge withdraws his uh, previous verdict of guilty and uh, calls for a five-minute recess. So then you go to uh, defendant lobby number two. Um, <laughs> this that was pretty funny. Uh, Phoenix is talking, you know, to your client, uh, Miles Edgeworth. Phoenix is basically like, oh, that was too close. And Edgeworth goes, I've seen worse. And I'm like, have you? Because <laughs> like, like the guilty verdict was declared. Like, as Maya just pointed out, like, it's hard to get worse than that. That's true. I mean, he's I, I'd say that's worse than what we've seen in Turnabout Sisters or Turnabout Samurai. So I don't know. Maybe Edgeworth has just seen some real dog shit defense attorneys get in pretty bad. Yeah, going up against uh, Winston Payne. Or no, he's a prosecutor. Yeah, exactly. What am I saying? I don't think we even know any other defense attorneys. We yeah, know, do we know any this... dog shit defense attorneys? 
We going up against Marvin Grossberg. I guess Grossberg is. I don't know if he's a dog shit defense attorney. He's yeah, he's he's just apathetic. He, he's pretty corrupt, you know. <laughs> like taking bribes. I don't even know if at this point he even like practices law on like bench trials. Like I kind of get the sense that he just like does paperwork and shit for people. Like I don't know. They even made a joke Rights. about this later, uh, which I had in my notes. If and I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but. In the next uh, investigation, if you go to the Grossberg Law Offices before the game wants you to go there, um, you know, Grossberg is away from the office and um, Maya has a pretty funny line. She goes, man, does this guy ever work? <laughs> it's like, yeah, he just does yeah. seem kind of like lazy and like corrupt and oafish. <laughs> but yeah, I think he's the, eh, he, he has somewhat of a redemption. I don't know. I think he's the closest thing we see to like a bad defense attorney. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Every other but, defense attorney uh, in this game is like a literal saint. You've got, you know, Mia, uh, Phoenix, and um, who else? Um, we've got Gregory. We've got yeah, Raymond Gregory. Shields. We've got Apollo. We've got Athena. Yeah. We've got Apollo's dad. I forget the name of. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. Literally every defense attorney is like, yeah, is like a saint, right? Is like an angel on earth, like to protect the innocent with their scathing logic and reason. And then, like every uh, prosecutor starts out as like a mustache twirling villain, <clears throat> but then for like eighty percent of the prosecutors, you realize they have some complex backstory, and it turns out they're actually like oh, a yeah. good guy. It's they're basically like the Dragon Ball Z reference, right? It's like every uh, defense attorney is a Goku, and every um, prosecutor is a Vegeta. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And you know what? What gets me every time? It, yeah, right down to the the spiky hair. You know, I think I'm onto something with this comparison. <laughs> it it gets me every time. I swear, <laughs> this game's got a formula, and I'm eating it up for eight games I... for eleven games. However many there are, I'll keep doing it. Yeah, and and listeners, I know it probably sounds like we're being critical of these games. You know, calling them like formulaic or whatever. But please oh, understand, love I love this formula. I will never yeah. stop playing these games. I don't even care. You know, just give me a new prosecutor who is this, you know, total like badass or whatever. And then it's like, but wait, you know, by the fourth case, they have this turn. And it's like, oh, yeah, here yep. it comes. Yep. If Capcom keeps making them, I'll keep playing them. Same. And we'll keep podcasting <laughs> about them, whether our listeners want us to or not. That's right. Th that's a threat. We'll keep <laughs> podcasting about them. That is a threat. But anyway, so in this district court, in the defendant lobby, um, Maya asks why Edgeworth's fingerprints oh, were on the gun in sorry, the first place. I'm sorry to interrupt. There was yep. one line I wanted to point out before that. Um, yeah. And it's not even like that, like noteworthy, but it like foreshadows yeah. a little bit. Um, you know, Edgeworth, what did he say? He's, he made that comment where he's like, oh, I've seen worse or whatever. Um, Phoenix is like, hey, Edgeworth, uh, you seem out of it. What's wrong? Nedworth kind of trails off. He goes, "It, it's, it's nothing," and this is the first inkling that we get that um, there's kind of something weighing on Edgeworth's mind. You know, beyond oh, sure, beyond just this, you know, current murder trial uh, for Robert Hammond. Uh, but sorry, you were about to continue with uh, what Maya was saying. Yeah. So after that, Maya asks why Edgeworth's fingerprints were on the gun in the first place. Which, yeah, valid question. Yeah. And uh, Edgeworth explains that um, well, hold on, after hold the on, other man. It, it is yeah. a valid question. And it's also a question they probably should have asked like 
before the trial started. I feel like they should have, you know, gone over these things with Edgeworth. Definitely before the judge, you know, declared his guilty verdict, which, by the way, already happened. Yeah. Question one and two and three and four probably should have been stuff like, why were you at Lake Gord? Why were you on the boat? Why did you hold the murder weapon? Yeah. Um, You know, why did you go to see Robert Hammond? And, uh, you know, our, our duo does ask some of those questions i believe they do ask him why he went out to the lake and yeah you know he's he's being a broody sundere boy about it you know he doesn't really he doesn't want to talk about he's so sundere holy shit (laughs) um but i still like i feel like some of this stuff maybe should have just asked our boy beforehand but that's okay this this is probably the time to find out this information anyway and really, his answer is, uh, it's kind of blasé, really. Yeah. He explains that after the other man fell into the lake, the gun <laughs> was left in the boat, and yeah. he just kind of picked it up. Yeah. He was, his mind was understandably not in a great spot in that moment, yeah. and he saw a gun, picked it up, and that's that's how it happened. So it obviously was a bad move for Edward to do that, because it made him, you know, look more like incriminating, but... It does actually line up with, you know, everything we've seen so far with like, you know, the cutscene we saw in the beginning and all that. So, sure. Picked up yep. the gun. That's how his fingerprints got on it. Yep. It, it checks out. <laughs> now, Edgeworth, of course, is a good lawyer and he has a pretty sharp insight after this. Yes. He remarks that um, this really is their chance. With Larry's outburst, yeah. this is their chance to disrupt the trial. <laughs> Since Manfred von Karma wouldn't have accounted for Larry... Yeah. This is a witness that, you know, isn't part of his grand plan. Yeah. And that this is kind of their shot at a turnabout. And yeah, he said it's it's funny because it's like it's the first time uh, Von Karman said to deal with something unexpected. And, and the unexpected witness is Larry Butts, who's just so chaotic that it's like, yeah, not only, you know, is Manfred Von Karma, you know, caught unprepared. It's like, I feel like nobody could really be prepared for this so yeah edgeworth is uh totally right here this is our chance and we and we should also point out once again as i always do for any lawyers who might uh be listening probably not how real cases work i don't think you can just have surprise witnesses you know burst into the courtroom without the defense or the prosecution's oh. knowledge but whatever it's fine but it's so it's so dramatic it's so cool and dramatic well it's it's just a rule of cool right like you know <laughs> right it doesn't matter if they you know have rules or anything it's just like yeah this is good storytelling let's do it and if any lawyers are listening dm me we'll get you on the pod yeah we'll interview you okay if we have any lawyer ace attorney fans send me a dm we'll get you on the pod okay anyway we go back into the district court courtroom number three it is now ten thirty-five a.m <laughs> so i guess it's been like 30 minutes plus our five minute break sure and um we, we kind of go right into Larry's cross-examination, pretty yeah. much. Um, so his his testimony is is kind of interesting, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, He testifies on the night of the murder. It's a six-statement testimony. And uh, basically he says that while he was searching for something, <laughs> uh, he heard only one gunshot. Yeah. And then he looked out to the lake, and he saw nothing. Yeah. And then he went home. So to, to refresh everyone's memory, the, the, he doesn't say this, but the something he was looking for was the, the steel samurai balloon that was previously uh, right. lost in the lake. Which, I don't know, do we know why he's so cagey about revealing that? He seems like he's, you know... I think he's probably just embarrassed, honestly. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess that makes the most sense, right? Where it's like, 
you know, yeah, he's, I guess he's like embarrassed, but he's, I don't know. It just seemed weird. Like I got the sense it was like this big secret. He didn't want the judge to find out about it. It's like, you didn't commit a crime. I mean, an accident occurred and you lost this balloon in the lake, (laughs) like whatever. Right. I think yeah, he's probably embarrassed about busting up an air a uh, a compressed air tank. <laughs> he probably is maybe a little wary that it might be considered like <laughs> littering, polluting the lake, or littering. Or, right? He he might like you know I, I could see him being concerned about that. And maybe on a broader level, maybe he doesn't want to reveal that that's that was Gordy. You know, maybe, know, maybe. he wants to keep the magic alive. Maybe yeah. he wants to keep it keep that story going because it supports his samurai dog business yeah see i think that i think that might actually be it that he doesn't want the truth of gordy getting out because he does mention that samurai dogs have been selling like crazy yeah since the story about gordy came out that's Um, i actually like that that's totally in line (laughs) with larry's character just to like allow the public to keep believing this lie if it's gonna like you know increase his sales (laughs) sure yeah Though I feel like Lotta Hart is probably about to put out a story about the truth of Gordy. Because, yeah. I mean, hey, she wants she wants to get something published either way. And honestly, girl boss. Yeah, so the, the anyway. gravy train's about to end for, for Larry yeah. when that story comes out. He'll have to come up with some other business venture. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, the, the judge does remark that it was an unusually vague testimony, even for the court. <laughs> I wrote that down, and, too. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I like that even the judge is almost like winking at the camera like, you know, yeah. he knows that this is, you know, this ridiculous kangaroo court. And there was one other little thing about this testimony I wanted to sort of highlight. Larry does specify that he quietly slipped the boat back into the rental shop. Mm-hmm. And, um, hey, you think he's, he stole that boat, right? Like, for sure. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no way. It, he, it's Larry. Yeah, he's such a freaking scooch. He doesn't like pay for anything. He doesn't pay to rent the boat. He doesn't. He doesn't pay you for like defending him. Uh, yeah, for the you know the trial one in this game. Oh my god, oh, that's so good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he for sure stole that boat at midnight. Absolutely, a hundred percent. I was actually kind of wondering that too. Like, um, because this came up previously when we find out the reason that he was out on the lake that night, and it's like, well, I guess he went out every night for like a week straight, you know, looking for the lost you know steel samurai balloon and i'm like wouldn't it be way easier to search for this thing like when there's some daylight and it's like you just figured it out that is exactly why he did it at night so he could you know (laughs) sneakily steal the boat without anyone noticing yeah oh my god that's awesome yeah he could save himself the 1250 a day you know rental rate or whatever (laughs) but yeah so with this statement uh with this testimony the statement that really stuck out to me is that um, he said he heard a single gunshot. Oh, yeah. That's immediately obvious. That's the important statement. Yeah. It, it's counter to what um, it's counter to what we know. Yes. All of the witnesses, right? Uh, Uncle, as well as Lada, both said that there were two gunshots. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if you present that, um, that's that's our contradiction for the uh the cross-examination. Yeah, so you have to present uh, Lada's testimony from the previous day. I actually goofed this on my first one. I presented the gun, which indicates okay. that it had been fired three times. So I thought that was the contradiction. But Which still, like, checks out, but not in the way the game wanted it to. Yeah, so. you won't yeah. Whatever. I guess that's why they give you, you know, five penalties. But Yeah, exactly. I did not do the thing the game wanted me to at first. 
But yeah, so Larry explains that um, he must have missed the other gunshot because he was listening to his um, to his radio. Oh man, here it comes. When he says that, when Mm -hmm. he says that he missed it because he was listening to his radio, the gallery starts booing at him. Boo this man. It's that's so funny to me that Mm -hmm. like everyone in the gallery just wants like a solid testimony and they're like, ah, come on with this guy. Didn't even hear the second gunshot. Get out of here. Get out of here, you fucking idiot. Like, everyone in the gallery. It's even better with, like, Larry's animation where he, you know, looks like deer in the headlights and starts sweating. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, man, this is so good. I, I think the gallery should boo more, if I'm being honest. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are times yeah. when, like, you know, you have the turnabout, right? And then the chase where you have, you know, the true murderer in the stand. Like, there are so many times, like... um the um turn about samurai uh with a uh, d vasquez like how are they not booing yeah. her it's like so obvious this yeah lady's, right? like getting away with murder like i i feel like the gallery should be like throwing rotten tomatoes at red white yeah. you know like like they should be throwing fruit at like frank saw it you know like so if absolutely they so hold on i think in in this just like minute or two i've been talking to you about this i feel like i've kind of changed my opinion at first i thought it was great that like the gallery is booing larry and then it's like now i almost feel bad for him like poor larry compared to these you know literal murderers they have in the stand it's like at first i was like yeah yeah get him boo larry and then it's like well wait a minute these people are way more deserving of being booed and now i just feel kind of bad for larry he's like a poor like puppy that's been kicked (laughs) And you know what? Hey, yeah, he was listening to his radio while he was fucking scouring Gord Lake for his Steel Samurai uh, inflatable, right? It's not like he knew he was going to be witness to a murder that night, okay? That's fair, He was probably bored out of his mind on Christmas Eve. He wanted some shit to listen to. Like, come on, like, give the guy a break. You know what? I'm with you on this. Yeah. But still think the gallery should get more wet and wild with it, get more rowdy. I think this should be like a coliseum. This should be like a sporting event. Yeah. Anyway. There was, there was a, a funny line coming up here. Well, maybe it's only funny to me, but um, they, they basically ask like, Von Karma, what do you think of this uh, witness's testimony? He says, I do not accept this witness nor his shoddy testimony. And it's like, Oof. I feel like shoddy is like the perfect word to describe Larry. That cuts. Yeah. That cuts. <laughs> but yeah, so the judge gives uh, gives Phoenix the option of either continuing the testimony or yeah. saying that's enough oh man are we about to uh to to tick the counter up counter plus yes. plus here absolutely the insistence counter is up to five yeah during this trial this is the fifth time yeah we've been given sort of a, a yes no option yeah so he, he says uh mr Wright, should the should he continue his testimony you can either say that's enough or please continue and doesn't matter because the trial continues either way yep <laughs> So yeah, you of course continue the uh, the testimony. We go into his uh, third cross examination of the trial, yeah. and uh, it's about what Larry heard, uh-huh. right? So um, specifically, what he heard between the gunshot and the radio. Yeah. So it's a quick one. It's a five statement testimony, and uh, he explains that he was listening to his radio really loud, uh-huh. but he heard one of the gunshots while the DJ was talking. Yes. Well, there was kind of funny the the interactions directly. Uh following his testimony right where um the judge says wait you were listening to the radio at a high volume and larry's like yeah what's the big problem and phoenix is like yeah you don't see what the problem is here the whole thing depends on you like hearing what happened anyway 
again, he didn't know he was going to be a murder witness that night. It's not his fault. So Justice me, for Larry. He could listen to the radio at a high volume if he wants. So, okay, you're right about that, but let me push back just a little bit. <laughs> so, yes, it's totally true. Larry didn't know that he was going to be witness for murder. Now, let me pose this hypothetical question to you. Yeah. If someone informed Larry ahead of time, Larry, something really important is going to happen on the lake tonight. You need to be listening. Do you think he would choose not to listen to the radio or do you think he'd still listen to it? I think he'd still listen to it. Oh, that's so tough. I, I could imagine, I could like imagine in my mind's eye a whole sequence where he's like, yeah, no problem. Got it. Mm-hmm. And he's like out on the lake focused for about an hour. Yeah. And then he's like, eh, I'll just, I'll put one earbud in, you know, yeah, like, it'll be fine. He's like, I'll just, it'll be fine right and then like i don't know he probably falls asleep or you know maybe he puts the second earbud in because he gets excited about a song or whatever you know yeah. like I, I could totally see him like just sort of like losing focus over some time <laughs> but then <laughs> probably he would discover some information through some other quirky way yeah <laughs> um yeah that's hmm i i think generally he he's he's got his eyes on the prize when he needs to yeah. but when yeah. the plot needs him to <laughs> when the plot needs him to exactly um and speaking of which <laughs> the detail he gives in this cross-examination is he says i remember exactly what the dj was saying when yeah. i heard it too yeah so of course that's the of course that's the uh, most important statement the one you need to press right i have to point out one other thing because th- this is another ace attorney trope um, you get the opportunity to explain to the judge something that is very much oh, yeah. common knowledge. <laughs> the judge says, excuse me, DJ? And Phoenix says, yeah, you know, an announcer. The guy who says the things on the radio. And it's like, yeah, I guess it is what a DJ is. <laughs> but, so add that next to a digital camera on the list of things you have to explain to the judge. I feel like Phoenix is so bad at explaining modern technology, actually. Yeah. Because it's like, does that really, like, get to the, the heart of what a DJ is? It's, it's like, a- yeah, when he explained a digital camera during Turnabout Samurai, he's like, he's like, eh, you know, it's a, it's an electronic camera. And it's like, Phoenix, that barely clears this up. Yeah. And there is something else, too. Um, oh, this was uh, the previous day of this trial when you had to explain rifling marks on the bullet. <laughs> Phoenix is just basically like, oh, you know. Like, no, we don't know. You know, rifling marks. Yeah. Oh, my God. This case is just like buffoonery all around. Yeah. You know, Phoenix is good at a lot of stuff, but explaining concepts about... I I don't hold on. I'm not not entirely sure Phoenix is good at a lot of stuff. He's he's good at bluffing and like eventually getting to the truth. Well, you know, I hey, we will see. He makes some pretty impressive deductions. And no, hold on, hold on. I want some... you to name something else that Phoenix is good at. We know he's not good at playing the piano. Oh, shit. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Biking. Is he? Does he get hit I by a swear... car when he's on the bike one time? <laughs> no, I looked this one up. He was actually a pedestrian at the time. All right. Um, You've won this round, Abby. I swear to God, he bikes in the anime. Yeah. I want to say. Oh, we'll we'll talk about the anime later. Have you? Side yeah, note. We'll, we'll talk. We'll we'll talk about the anime. Okay, sorry. Um, go on. We gotta we gotta stay focused here. Yeah, we we press on. Uh, Larry saying that he heard what the DJ was saying. Yes. Um, and Von Karma insists that this isn't important. 
and we get the we get the choice to either insist that it matters or not Mm -hmm. um and you have to say that it matters to continue now so this is a rare choice that actually does matter i mean you can't like fail or get a penalty here but you do eventually need to choose that the statement matters it's it's one of those things where if you say nah this detail doesn't matter you just can't you straight up can't progress the critical path right There, there was another funny line too where phoenix his inner monologue he says I can't believe I'm continuing this charade. So I'm I'm going to count this on the insistence counter because okay. if you say no, you just have to press the statement again yeah. and say yes. So I'm putting the insistence counter at six. Okay. So you say yes, what the, the thing the DJ was saying is important, <laughs> right? And Larry says, okay. And he adds that the detail was that uh, when he heard the gunshot, <laughs> the DJ said, hey, it's almost Christmas. Yes. So we get a new statement, which yeah, yes, we get a new statement of the uh, of that detail, <clears throat> and you present the lake photo, the first lake photo that shows. Uh, or I'm sorry, no, it's the second lake lake photo, the enhanced one from yeah. Lot of Heart, uh, that shows the shot being uh, taken <clears throat> at 12:15 a.m. So, side note, this this is a rare instance where there's actually <clears throat> two different pieces of evidence you can present. Oh, for real. <clears throat> yeah, you can present uh, the lake photo that has the timestamp showing it was taken at 12.15, um, which is a contradiction, right? Because the DJ said um, it's almost Christmas, and this photo was taken 15 minutes after the start of Christmas Day. Uh, the other thing you can present right. is uh, Lada's testimony, where she indicates she heard two gunshots, and they occurred just after midnight. So you get a little bit of different text depending uh, on which no thing way. you choose. Yeah. Now, this might be like that. nitpicking too much. If, if I... Um, made this game i probably would have like removed that part from lattice testimony where <clears throat> made it just that she heard you know the two gunshots but not include that you know it was after midnight because then it would force you to you know there would only be one piece of evidence that you know had the contradiction it would force you to choose the right one instead of having this thing where you could choose two and also it would force you to um choose different piece of evidence right because because i got through by choosing lattice testimony and there i presented like the same piece of evidence twice in a row where it's like oh got like, it. more variety given like how many different things you have in the court record but yeah every piece of evidence should be submitted at least once that's my that's my belief i believe every not, not necessarily well I, I do think it's actually good when they have some fake outs and things like the red hairs yeah. that you don't need to use but um yeah in this case i don't know that's i probably would have changed it because i yeah in, I mean, sometimes but, it's unavoidable, but in general, I don't think it's good when they have like two different things you could choose. Like they should kind of, you know, tighten it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. So if you present either of those pieces of evidence, <laughs> we, we do get a very good frame of Phoenix saying almost Christmas means it wasn't Christmas. I, I think that line became like an Internet meme. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I literally, I use this reaction image every December. Yeah. Every December since like 2012, I, I send this picture to my friends. It's very good. So, so um, I, I'm a pretty uh, newcomer to Twitter, but I, I hear that this is a thing that like Twitter users will do is um, a couple days before Christmas every year, they'll start, you know, tweeting this uh, screenshot saying almost Christmas means it wasn't Christmas. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, like pretty much, I, I think it's fair play around December 20th. Yeah. So we've got that to look forward but, to uh, coming up soon. Yeah. So we then get Von Karma insisting that Larry is just straight up wrong, right? That he's misremembering it. 
Yeah. And um, we get the option to say either Larry is wrong or Larry is right. Mm. Now, the insistence counter triggers when you get a positive-negative dialogue choice yeah. and either response results in you being forced to the positive. Mm -hmm. In this case, if you say Larry is wrong, it actually loops you back around and forces you to repeat the dialogue until you say he's right. Yeah. A little, it's subtly different than the other six we've seen so far, but I'm going to count it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say the insistence counter is now at seven. Yeah, because you're, you're still railroaded either way. Yeah, yeah. So I think that still counts. Um, so you say, yes, Larry is right. He's not mistaken. He heard the gunshot before midnight. Yeah. And Karma's like, okay, <laughs> show show the evidence. Show the research, right? Yeah. Um, so you show the uh, the second lake photo. <laughs> um, and that is, the, that is the photo that I was thinking of before. The yeah. one that was taken before midnight. <clears throat> yeah, because both these photos have like the timestamp, right? So... This uh, right. first photo was taken at 11.50 p.m. The second one was taken at 12.15 a.m. Right. And this second lake photo shows that the camera did, in fact, go off once before midnight. Yeah. Which is something we really kind of haven't dug into until this moment. Right. Even the piece of evidence itself, Lada really didn't see much of a point in submitting at first. Yeah. But now it, it really is coming in in a major way. Because that's that coincides exactly with Larry's testimony. Yeah, I like the way uh, Phoenix Wright explains this. He makes a pretty convincing argument. Um, the judge says, wait, who cares about this photo? It's just an empty lake. There's nothing here. And uh, what Phoenix says is, you know, the, the issue is not what's in the photo. It's that the photograph exists. <laughs> like something happened right. at 1150 when this contradicts, you know, what we've heard. Right, exactly. And he, he breaks it down quite simply. Yeah. Larry heard one gunshot before midnight. Yep. Lotter heard two after mid yep. midnight. So there were two sets of gunshots with a 25-minute pause between them. Yes. So, finally, uh, Phoenix ties it all together. Von Karma says anything could have triggered the camera. Yeah. And uh, the judge agrees with that and demands proof uh, that the first photo was triggered by a gunshot. Yeah, and, and th this is the part I actually I, I goofed earlier by by <laughs> I pun intended jumped the gun by uh, presenting this piece of evidence uh, too early. But yeah, at this point you yeah I actually uh, I have in my notes here uh, I wrote oh shit I'm actually not sure about this one yeah. I actually have to go through the evidence for this <laughs> and then immediately after that I write oh okay it's the pistol yeah because. Yeah, if you look at the pistol and evidence, it says it was fired three times, which yes. lines up exactly with Phoenix's assertion. Yes. So, um... Oh, yeah, so hold on, just to this, summarize, because this this part, at least I was a little confused the first time I went through this. Okay. So just to summarize, um, we have this pistol that we know was fired three times that night. Um, the first gunshot occurred at 11.50, which is the first time it set off the camera, and Larry Butts confirmed that he heard a gunshot before midnight. And then there was a 25-minute gap where there were no gunshots. And then afterwards, there was a second set where this time there were two shots, like back-to-back. -back, and that's like the second time the camera went off. Right. So this leads into maybe one of the most important revelations of the entire trial. Yeah. This this leads to a really big moment for Phoenix, right? Yeah. Um. So... You know, Von Karma kind of, he, he takes in the explanation and he's like, okay, if this is true, there were two sets of gunshots separated by 25 minutes, one at 1150 and another 15 minutes after midnight. 
why like wh- why why would that happen yeah. right and phoenix like yells out loud much to to maya's like it startles her right yeah. and he explains that the murder in this case had the same idea as the murder in the steel samurai case uh-huh. right and uh as he sort of has this revelation von karma summarizes the facts of the case so far yeah he says at the time of the murder one boat was on the lake. This was shown by the witness's photograph. The defendant, Edgeworth, and the victim, Robert Hammond, were on the boat. There was a gunshot fired on that boat, and Robert <laughs> Hammond fell into the lake. Yeah. The distance of the shooting was one meter. <laughs> it couldn't have been suicide. So the guilty party had to be the other man on the boat. Um, right? Yeah. And that's all true. If the murder occurred at 12.15 a.m. Oh, man, here it comes. Phoenix asserts that Hammond was not murdered when the 12.15 photo was taken place, but when the empty 11.50 p.m. photo yeah. was taken. Oh, man, this yeah. is such a good Ace Attorney trope where it's like the murder didn't occur when we thought it was and the body was moved yeah. and here's how it really happened. We have found the turnabout. Yep, the actual moment of the murder. <laughs> and I am very happy that Phoenix made this deduction himself because I don't think I would have. Well, that's why I tried to summarize like a minute ago. Yeah, I got a little bit confused and I guess they're about to explain it in a minute, but I was like, well, wait, why was the gun fired twice at 12.15? But I think we're about to get into that next. So yeah, I got, I I actually got to give it to Phoenix right here. Like (laughs) he he did a good job and he did this without, you know, any handholding from, you know, me or any of his other like assistants or anything. It is a genuinely impressive deduction, yeah. and it's one of those things that doesn't even feel like too big of a leap for him to make, yeah. especially as he relates it to uh, Jack Hammer's attempted murder yeah. on Will Powers during Turnabout Samurai. This is a good reveal. So yeah. I think it, yeah, I think it's really cool that he he does tap that experience that he has gained as a defense attorney. That's tr- I'm glad so, you pointed that out because that's something maybe like I didn't really appreciate or whatever, but this is like. I want to say like character growth. It's like, yeah, he starts out as this, you know, completely novice, like inexperienced attorney. And now he's actually like, you know, using things he learned in like previous cases. So, so good on you, Nick. Good on you, Nick. So, uh, the next thing the judge has to, uh, has to say is, um, you know, what, what's the murderer's name? Uh. Right. And, uh, this I felt was kind of a subversion on the insistence counter I've been keeping track of. Because he asks for the murderer's name, and the right Wait, answer is not to... Did he ask yeah. for the murderer's name, or did he ask who was on the boat? Oh, uh, yeah. I I did skip that. He does ask who was on the boat. You say it's Edgeworth and the murderer. Yeah. Which is the name of my indie rock band, <laughs> nice. Edgeworth and the murderer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, And then, yeah, he asks for the murderer's name. Didn't and uh, the answer is not to press on with a confident and direct answer. The correct answer is to say, I don't know. This is so Which good. I felt is a bit of a of subversion of the insistence counter. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Uh, the other answers were Miles Edgeworth and Lotta Hart, which are obviously wrong. So it's not too difficult of an answer to make. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's it, it's a fun little, little bit that Phoenix does where he's like, I don't know the murderer's name. And Karma's like, ah, what a waste of time. <laughs> and Phoenix is oh, like, is so I good. don't know because he never told us oh, and then he shoot. accuses the caretaker yeah i know it's such a it's such a good slam it's i excellent. do love the 
I do love when he takes his like little dramatic liberties. Yeah. Um. So he asserts that 11.50 p.m. is the time of the murder. Yeah. The boat rental shop is the real scene of the murder. Yeah. And that the caretaker is the actual murderer. And Larry heard the gunshot from the coast because that's when and where it occurred inside the shop. Yeah. Yeah, I do like so, how this all fits together so nicely, right? It's like, yeah, because we know Larry was listening to the radio at a loud volume, so it must have the murder must have occurred like you know close by where he was, since Larry was you know, um, I guess returning the boat at eleven fifty. Like, yeah, it occurred like on the shore yeah. as opposed to you know out on the lake. So now it's like all the not contradictions, but all the kind of like things that seem a little details off. yeah the details like it all fits yeah. together and it's like oh my god we figured it out this this was a very good reveal i like this yeah the the one thing i'll take a little bit of contention with is that if the 1150 shot was fired from the boathouse <laughs> we can see in the map that the woods and the boat rental shop are fairly far apart <laughs> and i do wonder if a shot from the boathouse would trigger lot of hearts camera all yeah. the way in the woods. I think that's kind of explained because, uh, you know, we learned that she had the camera on a fairly sensitive setting, <laughs> right? It was, you know, able to be triggered by a sneeze <laughs> such yeah. that I feel like it's not unreasonable that a shot from the boathouse would trigger it, but it's just barely a bit of a stretch. Well, did he, that was almost like a throwaway joke or whatever. Like, didn't she adjust the sensitivity or whatever after Maya kept like wasting her film by like sneezing? So, oh yeah. So you know, listen, this game is so like detail oriented. You know, making sure they get everything right. Like, I'm sure that um, at the time it must have been set to the higher sensitivity to be triggered by yeah. the gunshot. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so this next sequence, I uh, I actually really like. Right? Go on. So the. Uh, the judge asks for an explanation from the beginning <laughs> and the game starts playing the cross-examination allegro yeah. theme <laughs> that is the musical track the game always reserves for the final cross-examination in a trial <laughs> and it starts playing now almost as if phoenix himself is being cross-examined. I remember I really like this explanation too, is Phoenix is, you know, going through all the details here of, you know, how this murder actually happened. I didn't catch that detail about the music, but I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really cool. So, yeah, he breaks it all down. He explains that the caretaker himself called Hammond to the shop and murdered him at 11.50 p.m. <laughs> and then he assumed Hammond's identity. Yeah. Then... He called Miles Edgeworth to the shop and took him out on a boat at 12.15 a.m. And then he shot twice, you know, into the water or whatever. He intentionally missed Miles Edgeworth. Yeah. The judge reasonably asked, why would he shoot twice, right? And uh, the reason he did it was to create a witness. The first shot was to draw attention to the lake, and the second shot was to secure a witness, which kind of worked with Lada. Really, I guess it worked more with her camera. Yeah. Um, well, that was the whole thing. Is he, he he wasn't aware of the camera, right? So right. He, he would have. Yeah, he wouldn't have been. So he fired like one shot hoping that like some witness would like come see what was going on and then he fired the second shot. Yeah. And then after he fires the two shots, he just jumped into the water. Yeah. <laughs> he just jumped in the water himself and left the pistol behind and then uh, he swam back to the shop, put the coat on Hammond and tossed his body in a lake. 
yeah. <laughs> it, it it's there is complete silence in the courtroom after this. <laughs> it it's like everybody is just dead silent. But honestly, that all makes perfect sense. Not only does it make, again, does it make perfect sense, but if you think about it, like the original story, like doesn't make sense because if it, that's the only way it would make sense that someone would need to fire two shots in this boat at 12, 15 AM was to, because they're trying to frame Miles Edgeworth for murder and they wanted to, you know, have, you know, have the first shot, you know, kind of create attention, get someone to witness, you know, the second shot. But if you, if you stop and think about it, like, you know, the original thing, how like Miles Edgeworth is, you know, on trial for murder, like how would that make sense? Like they're in a boat together, one meter apart. Like how could anyone like miss the first shot and need to fire a second one? Like it doesn't make sense. Right. So we know that Hammond died from a single bullet wound, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, I should have said that in the beginning. You're right. Yeah. Right. He died from a single shot. So maybe, you know, if we're to believe the prosecution, Edgeworth just missed the first shot. Yeah. And you're right. How do you look? I haven't, I haven't really fired many guns. Yeah, but even from a point blank range, an untrained, um, you know, marksman, yeah, could probably make that shot. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So yeah, it does. It really doesn't make much sense. Mm-hmm. But now the way Phoenix has laid it out, it's insane. The story is insane. I but love in that. a weird way, it makes even more sense. Well, yeah, this is like the whole like Sherlock Holmes thing, right? Like when you. Would- eliminate like the impossible whatever is left no matter how unlikely is the truth and i i do right you know now that i've played like great ace attorney i'm 100 percent convinced that uh sherlock holmes uh was a major influence up there with columbo <laughs> major influence yeah. on the feast oh, excuse me on the phoenix rider ace attorney games yeah absolutely and again i am so happy phoenix made this logical leap because there's no way in hell i would have yeah now this this part was excellent i love this reveal yeah so after all of that, obviously, yeah, the judge asks to see the caretaker. Mm-hmm. He was just on try. He was just testifying, right? So they want to see him and ask him about this. Yeah, they want to really want to ask him, like, "Hey, did you shoot this guy?" <laughs> yeah, like, what do you have to say about all this? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Meanwhile, while they're while they're waiting to get the caretaker, uh, the judge does ask Edgeworth why he went to the lake in the first place. Mm-hmm. And uh, Edgeworth does confess. He says he received a letter signed by Hammond yes. to come to the lake at midnight. Uh, the letter said that he wanted to discuss something with Miles, but Miles did not want to elaborate. Which, so, again, uh, I get that they do this for like dramatic storytelling purposes. And, you know, Edgeworth was like hesitant to reveal all this stuff, whatever. Probably a detail that should have come out earlier. <laughs> That Edward he probably should have mentioned it, I think. Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> when Edgeworth was like, oh, I went to the lake to go find Gordy. It's like, come on, Edgeworth, don't don't bullshit me. Yeah, we know you didn't. <laughs> um, So after they have that little conversation, the bailiff comes in and says that he cannot find the caretaker. <laughs> um, So the judge extends the trial by a day because, yeah. because obviously they can't progress without the new accused murderer. Yeah. Right. And um, the judge says, like, all right, by tomorrow, we're going to find the caretaker and you're going to tell me who the caretaker is because this is insane. It it actually is insane. Yes. Right. It's a really cool, dramatic twist, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of like that moment when they're 
you know, right at the height of this explanation, you're like, well, okay, you know, this, this supposed murderer is right in the building. Let's go get him. And he's gone. Like, yeah, what? This dude is just so inscrutable and mysterious. Like part of me imagines him just teleporting out of the courtroom. Like we know nothing about this dude. Well, he realistically, you know, as far as we know, the players, right? Like this dude is suffering from, you know, memory loss. He seems like this kind of like bumbling old man. He, you know, doesn't remember his own name. Like he, you know, thinks like he calls Phoenix, right? Like Keith, he has all these ridiculous things. And then, um, so he seems like, you know, this kind of bumbling idiot. And now we're starting to suspect that, like, you know, he was the true killer. And it's like, oh, my God, what's going on? Bring him back here. And he's just like, whoop, right. whoop, like, peaced out. Like, <laughs> right. It's like, who who is this guy? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it really it, it really, I think, accentuates the mystery around the caretaker. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, the trial gets extended. We go back into oh, the court on. lobby just before we go in the lobby. There is uh, one other thing I wanted to point out when. um. A minute ago when the judge was asking um edgeworth you know what was going on you know he revealed the thing about the letter um edgeworth made a point of saying um what wright said just a minute ago was uh was mostly correct astonishingly so accurate uh actually and this is something that came up earlier like in the first day of the investigation remember when edgeworth was like impressed with all like the evidence we found i must get the sense yeah. again that like you know Edgeworth seems, you know, so like cold and distant, but then it's like you get this sense that like once like Phoenix Wright kind of proved himself like in the courtroom, uh, that he really does have this like respect for you. I feel like we have like earned his respect. I thought that was a, a neat line. Yeah. Yeah. Edgeworth definitely values capability. Yes. Right. He he we of course know he is a man of emotion. He is a sensitive man. <clears throat> But I think part of him really does respect a capable person, a a professional, you know, someone who puts their all into what they do, who puts their heart into what they do. And I think Phoenix has proven, you know, over the last three cases that he does that, you know, that he approaches his professional career in a very similar way that Edgeworth himself does. Yeah. But maybe from a different direction, yeah. you know, from a, a more chaotic direction. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think he respects that, you know, and I think that's very sweet. Um, so we do uh, after that, when we do go into the defendant lobby, we get a another very emotional, dramatic moment with Edgeworth <laughs> where he says that he has been conflicted about telling Phoenix something. Yeah. Um, that. He has had a nightmare, but he doesn't want to tell Phoenix about it. A nightmare about a crime he's committed. A memory of a murder to be continued. Yeah, which is a very dramatic way to end uh, this courtroom scene. And that's it. At the end of uh, part four. (laughs) I did. I had wrote in my notes next to this line, Oh my God, he's such a tortured soul. Somebody save this boy. It's like brooding. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. He's such an emo kid. I I fucking love it. I fucking love it. He's he's so troubled. He's so tortured, but he has a heart of gold. It's He's a great character. I love his arc in this case. He is a great character. And especially after playing the Miles Edgeworth uh, investigation games. Although I guess I'm still uh in progress for like the second one um 
yeah, Edgeworth is a very interesting character. He's got, in my opinion, uh, even more interesting uh, backstory than uh, Phoenix Wright. But yeah, this this was quite well, the bombshell <laughs> he just dropped here. Yeah, he he definitely has a more interesting backstory than Phoenix Wright, which actually is a good place to start the third and final investigation for this case. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're about to begin part five of this. Yeah, part five. This is the third and final investigation of Turnabout Goodbyes. So it is... Uh, it starts... It is December 27th. 2.11 p.m. starts in the Wright and Co. law offices. So it picks up pretty much right after we leave, you know, the defendant lobby after this big uh, revelation that Edgeworth had dropped on us at the end, which <laughs> um, they basically, you know, rehash by um, giving you this uh, immediate flashback here, which totally makes sense because, you know, <clears throat> you reach the part of, you know, the I guess what would be part four, the courtroom scene, you know, it'd probably be a normal thing and the game prompts you to save. So it'd be normal to, you know, walk away for a while and come back. Um, if you're yeah. like me and you just kind of marathon through it, it seems very silly. This is like, you know, Naruto yeah. level of like the flashback. It's like, man, I wonder what happened five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. But they um, show you uh, what Edwards is saying, a memory of a crime that I committed, a memory of a murder. And it's like... I don't know. I mean, I know this is like a big dramatic reveal, so I don't want to say anything before, but am I the only one who thought it was a weird, a weird way to like describe it? <laughs> it's like a weird way to like refer to, imagine like a murder that I committed, like referring, like, you know, if Edgeworth, it truly had, you know, no memory of this event and then it suddenly came back to him. Like, I wouldn't just refer to it as a crime I committed. I'd be like, Holy shit, I just remembered I killed someone. <laughs> like how would you react, so, Abby? Yeah, I, I don't think it's that he just remembered it. I think that right now is when he is willing to talk about it. Um as he'll say himself, this is actually a memory that has haunted him pretty much continuously every single night for like fifteen years. So like he he's it's this burden he's been carrying that he's only just now willing to share with anybody. Yeah, that's so, a fair point. And I even pointed that out in like the, our previous um, yeah. you know, episode where, where I said, I, what was it? There was the part when uh, you're talking to Edgeworth and you get that first hint where Phoenix is like, something wrong, you seem like out of it. So yeah, you're right. This is clearly something he's been wrestling with. I was being silly. Yeah. And you know, the way that he puts it, right? A memory of a crime that I committed. Yeah. A memory of a murder you know like saying it like that uh, i think it is fitting yeah. of this this gentleman that we know <laughs> to sip tea and broodingly yeah. stare out the window it does seem over you know, dramatic like, the way he says it but edgeworth is over dramatic so very in character for him you know what i retract everything yeah. i just said i'm fine with this yeah and speaking of that statement mm -hmm. right we start out the investigation in the Wright and Co. law offices yeah. while uh, Phoenix and Maya are kind of pondering, right, if they really think Edgeworth would have killed somebody. Yeah. That's a pretty heavy thing to consider. And as they're thinking about that, Larry barges in and he demands praise for his performance in court today. Which is kind of funny because here's the thing, right? So, you know, this basically seems like, you know, the whole way like the movement works during like the investigation portions you know you don't see the characters like 
you know, in real time, like moving from one location to another, you just kind of select from the menu where you want to go. Right. So, you know, this was like right. between, you know, the courtroom part just ended and, you know, now we're back in the right and co-lofts is, so it's like, seems normal until I started to think about it. Right. So it's like, we know that Phoenix Wright doesn't uh, drive. So he must like yeah. get back to the right and co-lofts some way, whether it's walking or biking or taking the bus or whatever. But we know we just had this dramatic courtroom scene where Larry testified. And then we know that you somehow got to the right and co-lofts and you talk to Maya for like two minutes and then Larry barges in. So we see like yeah. following you here. <laughs> like Yeah. So the trial ended at 1.22 p.m. <laughs> and we're at Wright & Co. at 2.11 p.m. Yeah. So it's like, whatever, like 40 minutes. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, Larry was probably just like on the same bus or the same like subway car Well, that's the thing, right? Because you're like friends with Larry. So it would make sense if you traveled like together. With but him. what doesn't make yeah. sense is for you to be in the lawsuit with Maya, talk for like two minutes, and it's like, oh, hey, look, it's Larry. What are you doing here? Like, he must have been like, you know, yeah, like you said, on the same bus or like following close behind you. It's like weird that he would be able to like come in and like surprise them, but whatever. As far as potholes go, that is like it, the most minor of minor nitpicks. I just thought it was funny. It is one of the tragic things that we do lose in narrative storytelling is that is usually not very engaging yeah. to cover minutia like traveling and daily life yeah. within a story. But I feel like it does misrepresent the way that we experience dramatic parts of our life, yeah. right? If you were to conduct one of the biggest, you know, trials of your career, you know, yeah. a big professional moment for you with a lot of, you know, emotional weight to it. <clears throat> and once it's done, you still have to drive home. You still have to eat dinner. Yeah. You still have to go to sleep that night. And those things are rarely depicted in media. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there is a 50 minute scene here where Phoenix and Maya are just like kicking their feet on the bus <laughs> or whatever. Just like, well, you know yeah. like that was some crazy shit wasn't it <laughs> like there are just these unseen little moments yeah. that like which to be clear I don't know. that's probably a good thing that they're unseen like we don't need to see all these details oh, yeah. i just thought it was funny yeah, that's like larry what are you doing here like back then, yeah we came from the same larry, place we saw you wearing a <laughs> we saw you wearing a fedora <laughs> and a goofy mask on the subway just a moment yeah. ago <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> But yeah, he, he barges into the right and co law offices and he demands praise. And, and I kind of do, I kind of like yeah. it. He he even demands praise. He demands for Phoenix <laughs> to swoon as well, yeah. which I think is pretty funny. Yeah, definitely. I think it's pretty funny. Larry wants everybody to swoon for him. Yeah. Um, and then we get the option to talk to him about a few things. Um, so the the... You know, first two things are super interesting. Uh, we could ask him his thoughts on today's trial. Yeah. And uh, he basically just remarks that the caretaker seemed pretty suspicious. Yeah. Um, and Hold on. Can I, can I point out this pun he, when he said... Uh, yeah, oh, please. <laughs> from where I was sitting, edgy seemed pretty edgy. <laughs> it's like they've been, you know, Larry had been calling Edgeworth uh, edgy since the beginning. And I'm like, if that nickname was just a setup for this pun, like, well done, game. You got me. Yeah. Yeah. Like they gave him that nickname from the beginning, wanting to make that pun yeah, for sure. Exactly. But, <laughs> but yeah. So um, Phoenix says to Larry that, you know, 
he knows that he could always count on Miles Edgeworth and Larry. Um, and I thought this bit was maybe a little weird. Um, Maya's kind of like, oh, you know, you feel like you could always count on Miles and Larry. What about me? You know, she doesn't say it out loud, but she's clearly upset yeah. that Phoenix didn't say that he can always count on uh, Maya. That- and th- that seemed weirdly cold for Phoenix to give Maya that silent treatment. You know what I mean? I do. And I, I noticed that. I wasn't going to bother pointing it out. I I don't actually know. This is just total speculation on my part. I'm willing to bet this was one of those things that, like, they tried to make, like, a joke in, like, Japanese that doesn't easily translate to English. That's the only thing I could think of because, like, yeah, there's no there's okay. no reason for Phoenix to just be, like, rude to Maya. He's like... It's like, oh, I could always trust these two. And she's like, oh, you mean like me and Edgeworth? He's, or, um, it's like, no, I mean Edgeworth and Larry, like intentionally leaving her out. It's like w- right. weird. Like, you know, Nick will like sometimes, you know, say these kind of like sassy things. <laughs> like I was saying, I like playing replaying through this. Like I forgot like how sarcastic and just like sassy like uh, Phoenix can be at times. But I don't think he would just be like, rude to Maya. I, I'm going yeah, to give him the benefit of the doubt and say this was something lost in translation. Okay. Yeah, because this didn't read as sassy to me. It just, it really just read as mean, yeah. as cold, yeah. right? Like, I get it's supposed to sort of play into Maya's um, character arc, right? Of feeling inadequate, right? Yeah. Of feeling, you know, like she's not useful. Um, but like from, yeah, Phoenix's characterization, it seemed weirdly cold. So I'm willing, I'm willing to accept that, that it's something that was lost in translation. That was maybe some sort of wordplay initially. And if I'm wrong about that, then I will admit the possibility I am being too charitable to Nick. Maybe he is just being rude. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just like a bit of an ass, yeah. right? So uh, we can also ask Larry about Edgeworth. Yeah. Uh, Maya asks Phoenix why he believes in Edgeworth, especially since, you know, Edgeworth was such a jerk when they yeah. met him. And uh, Phoenix says that he'll explain it all. Yeah. That he'll explain why he trusts Larry and Edgeworth and also why he became a defense attorney. Yeah. So, Phoenix, I like the way we uh, get this reveal or this insight into, you know, Miles Edgeworth's backstory. Phoenix says, um, you didn't know him back then, back when he wanted to become a defense attorney. Yeah. So, we we get uh, Phoenix's whole tragic, brooding, and emotional backstory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is good. So this is, um, so I guess Maya knew some of this. She knew that, you know, Phoenix and uh, Larry and Miles uh, used to be like classmates. But now, um, you know, Phoenix uh, starts to reveal uh, this whole story about uh, the class trial they had. They they were in fourth grade. Um, Phoenix Wright says that he was, he himself was put on trial, what he describes as a class trial. So and that just immediately made me think of a uh, Dan Ganronpa for uh, yeah Nick. yeah this is a different kind of class trial part of the killing game God that would be such a great crossover <laughs> right although I'm pretty sure Dan Ganronpa was like inspired by Phoenix Wright anyway at 100 percent absolutely yes so you get the option to talk about the class trial and uh, Phoenix asks Larry if he remembers this incident from fourth grade uh, apparently Larry doesn't at first um, until yeah. you kind of like press him a little bit and. He does remember, um, Phoenix Wright says that there was, they went to a small school where, um, every month the kids would bring 
uh, money in an envelope uh, to pay for their school lunches. So they'd bring like, you know, a fat wad of cash at the beginning of each month. In this case, um, there was uh, one kid's envelope uh, disappeared with uh, $38 still inside. So um, at this point, Larry Butts is like, oh, yeah, now that you mention it, I do remember. Um, so we learned that um, Larry was out of school that day. Um, the incident took place during uh, their gym class. Uh, Phoenix Wright was not, uh, per- he was present in school, but I guess not participating in gym class because he was coming down with a cold. Yeah, he was sick. Which seems to happen a lot in Phoenix's past. Like, the same thing happened in, like, the third game where he caught a cold. Um, so he has a weak constitution. Yeah, poor uh, Phoenix Wright and his, like, weak immune system is, like, responsible for uh, yeah. all of the troubles that he finds himself in. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there was uh, this one kid who we never learned their name, but they had an envelope with $38 that was stolen. Uh, Phoenix Wright was immediately uh, suspected of taking it because he was the one who was not present during PE class. Um, so the they ended up uh, holding a class trial uh, the following day. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I messed up. It was not the case. We do learn uh, whose money it was. It was yep. uh, none other than Miles Edgeworth's. Um, they didn't reveal it right away, but we learned that uh, pretty soon. So with Miles Edgeworth's yeah. uh, lunch money that was stolen, Phoenix Wright is uh, put on trial the following day. Basically, you know, all the kids are like against him. This scene is, you know, not interactive at all. It's not like a courtroom scene where we actually get to like defend him. Although that would have been kind of cool. I feel like, um, <laughs> well, maybe the trial ended too quickly for this, but I feel like this would be a good opportunity for one of those like, you know, introductory trials. You know, they always have that in like the the first case in each game is... Um, you know, one of those things where you go up against like Winston Payne and it'll be like kind of a short like courtroom scene to like learn the mechanics. I thought it'd be cool. I bet you <laughs> there is a fan case yeah. of this incident, yeah. of this that event. That would be excellent if they had uh, a fan yeah. made, you know, project with this uh, case in it. But basically, um, you know, Phoenix Wright is like the only suspect. Everyone thinks he's the only one who could have done it. All the students and even the teacher are like completely biased against him we see you know this flashback to when they're all little kids you know phoenix right like i think this is actually kind of effective the way they do it like um we see him and he's got like this bright light shining in his eyes like he's you know blocking you know his face with his hand um you know i guess it's just like sunlight coming in from the window but it kind of looks like he's you know in this like interrogation room type setting you know all the students are against him they're saying he's guilty he definitely did it um which is, you know, normal for, like, kids. Here's the part I took issue with. The teacher is also just biased against him. Did you feel this way, too? She was like, um, you know, we just see this flashback. Like I said, you know, it's not, like, interactive at all. We just, you know, see this dialogue where this, you know, class trial that I'm, like, putting in, like, air quotes here is basically just all the students, like, berating poor Phoenix. And it's like, yeah. You know, whatever. I get that. There could be like the mob mentality, you know, the students kind of jumping to this conclusion that Phoenix Wright like had to have done it. Fine. They're kids. I can forgive that. But then like the teacher steps in and just says, now Phoenix, you know, you shouldn't steal people's money. It's not right. And it's like, what kind of backwards, like, you know, fake trial is this? It's like the teacher, right? This isn't a trial at all. The teacher just like assumes that he like did it. It's like, you know, just like, you know, telling the witness you're guilty, you know, you shouldn't have done this. Apologize. Like, that's not a trial. It's just like assumed guilt. So I'm not a teacher, yeah. 
And I don't know necessarily how, what the responsible way to solve interpersonal disputes between children mm-hmm. is. Yeah. But getting the entire class to arrange a kangaroo court where they all bully one student probably ain't it. Yeah, this is pretty terrible. Um, it, this is probably not the move for it, this and, teacher. And the only one who seems to agree with us that this is terrible and not how a trial should work is a young Miles Edgeworth <laughs> who immediately yep. objects. I like the way they do this, how um, we don't hear his voice, but you know they reuse the, the little objection uh, sprite that pops up. So... Young yeah. Miles Edgeworth uh, comes to the rescue here. He says um, Phoenix shouldn't have to apologize. He says the only thing that belongs in a trial is evidence. <laughs> Which, yeah, fair point. Like, good on you, Edgeworth. The teacher and the other students, you know, they don't have any evidence. They're just, you know, all pointing the finger at poor Phoenix. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently it took this, like, 10-year-old to to really sort of bring this simple fact to light and i get that like you know they're trying to establish that you know edgeworth is you know probably like mature for his age that you know he really looks up to his father uh, gregory edgeworth this famous uh, defense attorney so yeah it kind of makes sense that like he's the voice of reason here but it's like yeah teacher like you need like a 10 year old to explain this to you like come on I do like, though, that, you that know, he, goes, me- he goes a little, he gets, like, almost too far, but maybe not. Maybe, like I said, the teacher deserves some criticism, but, but what Edgeworth continues, he goes, you should all be ashamed, amateurs. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, get him, Edgeworth. You know, I mean, maybe this teacher is like a 20-something-year-old fresh out of, you know, college or whatever. This is her first class that she's teaching. Uh-huh. Uh, it may be... Maybe, you know, she was up a little too late last night watching Netflix and she's like, you know what? Yeah. If it kills 20 minutes of class time, I'll let him do it. You know, like <laughs> maybe, maybe she's just like, hey, you know, we'll consider this a, a history lesson or whatever. It's fine. Like, I, I would love to maybe see. Maybe she's just not a great teacher. I don't know. Well, I would love to see what you uh, suggested earlier, like this, you know, fan-made game where you actually get to play out this yeah. like, class trial. Like, that would be amazing. Because we just, you know, this teacher and, you know, the other students in the class, the only students who really matter for this story, you know, you've got the three, you know, Phoenix Wright, uh, Miles Hedgeworth, and Larry Butts. We never get to meet any other students. None of them really matter. And the teacher, you know, doesn't really matter. But we we only see them, you know, in these, they don't even get like animations. They're just, you know, these kind of still backgrounds that we see yeah. to give the impression of, you know, this flashback to this class trial. That would be awesome to see the fan game, to see like the actual like characterization. I want to see this teacher like yeah. reimagined as, you know, one of those things where it's like similar to how we keep talking about like the Miles Edgeworth investigation games, how you, you know, learn about gregory edgeworth's history where he you know the things they only kind of hint at here where he had this trial where he went up against you know manfred von karma like i want to see that i want to see like the the teacher in this class you know get like an actual sprite with like animations he'd probably be like one of those like buffoonish you know like frank sawit type characters yeah so here's here's what i'll do for you amish all right i'll I'll, i'm putting this in here as a note to myself right now (laughs) i will look this up and I will find if there is a, a fan game of this class trial. Yeah. And if there is, I will edit in the name and the the people responsible for creating it. I'll edit that in right here so y'all could take a look at it because I bet you it exists. Yeah. And I bet you it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, hey, 
Editing Abby here. So I did a little bit of research, and it turns out that uh, there actually aren't any fan games of Phoenix's Class Trial. I uh, did some Googling. I even solicited the great wisdom of the Ace Attorney Circle Jerk Discord server. And uh, yeah, it seems like this, it seems like it's just a thing that no one's done. So hey, if, if you want to make an Ace Attorney fan game, uh, have at it. Go crazy, because this is a pretty solid opportunity, I think. All right. Thanks. Back to the show. And there. Yep. Uh, I I just edited it in. So, whoa, go check that out. I bet it's pretty cool. I, I or if it doesn't like exist. yourself up for failure. You're going to go back. And, <laughs> poor Abby's going to go back and edit this podcast like six months from now and be like, oh, yeah. ooh, now, yeah, now I have to actually find this fan game. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm leaving this in here as a little landmine to myself. <laughs> There, there are there are two alternate possibilities here that either it doesn't exist or it does and it's not very good. Yeah. Um. All right. But that, that <laughs> anyway, was, that was quite a tangent. But in any case, um. So we've got you know Phoenix right on trial. Everyone's against him. Edgeworth stands up for him. He says, um, you shouldn't have to apologize. They have no evidence. You know, you didn't steal the money. Um. And then we get you know Larry Butts who, uh, also speaks up, which. Didn't they say earlier that Larry Butts was like out of school that day? So why is he here now? The trial happened oh, on a subsequent right. day. Trial the next day. Man, I'm yeah. sorry for getting my details mixed up. Okay. Now you're so, good. So um, yeah. So Larry Butts uh, also speaks up. He goes, "Oh, this is how it always is. Everyone, you know, gang up on one person." So, you know, after uh, Miles Edgeworth, you know, raises the initial objection, you know, has your back, then you know, Larry Butts also jumps in, uh, and he's apparently on your side. So this, again, like, air quotes, class trial uh, ends pretty quickly where I guess they didn't find the guilty party. Um, there was no evidence that Phoenix did it, so he's off the hook. The teacher says that she'll uh, replace the stolen money herself. I was disappointed here. I feel like we should have at least gotten the, the not guilty animation where the confetti falls down from the ceiling. But, uh-huh. uh, but we didn't. Yeah. So yeah, that is Phoenix's backstory. <laughs> Basically, in that moment, he said he learned how it felt to truly be alone. Yeah. And he resolved to become a defense attorney. Yeah. So um I how do you feel about that as a sort of backstory for oh, Phoenix? I have mixed feelings. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's sorry, Yeah. It's pretty weak. <laughs> <laughs> so I, ooh, I mean, look, they, it is like an effective way of establishing, you know, why Phoenix Wright would become a defense attorney saying how he, it's like on the one hand effective of showing, you know, how Phoenix Wright came to have this empathy for people who are accused of a crime and, you know, wants to represent them how he thinks, you know, everyone you know, deserves their, you know, chance to defend themselves in court. Like, fine, I get that. But then it's like, you compare this to, like, Miles Edgeworth's backstory about, like, you know, his father getting murdered in this, you know, epic trial where, like, Gregory Edgeworth went up against Manfred von Karma and, like, you learn all these other details and it's like, yeah, this whole, like, you know, (laughs) class trial over the stolen $38 seems pretty weak by comparison so here's the thing Mm -hmm. it is weak 
Yeah. And that is why it's good. <laughs> so you're right. I it, it It's so funny that the game places the full explanation of Phoenix's backstory at this point in the narrative. Yeah. Right after we got an inkling into the darker parts of Miles's backstory. <clears throat> so by comparison, yeah. this is this is nothing. Yeah. This is nothing. Well, okay. You know? So, okay. I, I f- actually do feel conflicted about this, and I tend to agree with you. This is comparatively a weaker backstory. However, if I could, um, if I could, like, steel man the argument here for, like, this being a good backstory for Phoenix, right? What I would say, because I think Phoenix even says this later on, where um, apparently Larry, like, didn't even remember this until, you know, Phoenix continued pressing and he's like oh yeah i think i remember something like that you know we're about to get to the next scene we go back to the detention center and talk to edgeworth who also doesn't remember this incident it made no impression on him i do think there is you know i I stand by what i said i think this is a little (laughs) weak backstory however i do appreciate the fact that it is possible to have like these childhood memories that make a big impression on someone and just seem like nothing to other people like you know it made right. zero impression on edgeworth he's like what the hell are you talking about and it apparently made a pretty little impression on both of us and when we played the game we're like this is like a nothing of an incident you know this petty theft right. of 38 dollars from this you know fourth grade class however um maybe that's the point maybe it's the point that um it Correct. was a very small incident that nobody seemed to care about or even remember except for phoenix it was a very important thing to him and you know what i can kind of respect that that's that so that's exactly it (laughs) that's why i think it's still good because it's a it's a weak motivation but the game itself recognizes that it's a weak motivation and expresses that through both larry's larry and edgeworth i think it i still i think it's good for that reason because, as we've talked about before, Phoenix is a simplistic character. Mm, yeah. I mean, as far as his role in the plot, yeah. his role in the narrative, he is meant to be not quite a blank slate, but he's meant to be uncomplicated. Yeah. And his backstory is simplistic and uncomplicated. Yeah. Because, largely speaking, the story isn't really about him right yeah the story is about mia it's about maya it's about edgeworth yeah he kind of just experiences it and that is not a dig against phoenix that is the role he serves in the narrative if he had a complicated you know twisty sinuous backstory it would just overburden the narrative it would make him too complicated you know he would have too much to experience so I think it's perfect. The narrative gives him a simple, uncomplicated, honestly, pretty cheesy yes. backstory. That's a good word. It is cheesy. And I think oh, it's perfect for him. And this is why I have mixed feelings, because it's like, it's cheesy, but then maybe in this case, having a cheesy, simple backstory works. But it, I, I do want to put a pin in this a little bit, because when we get to the... um we get back to the detention center. We talk to Miles Edgeworth um, and we get more details. There, There is something else I want to bring up, but let's just continue so, from here. 
Yeah, we we do actually accentuate his motivation just a little bit mm-hmm. in the next dialogue option, yeah. uh, where we can ask Larry about Edgeworth's goals. Yeah. And uh, basically, Phoenix explains that as a kid, Miles wanted to be like his dad. Yeah. But one day, Miles suddenly transferred schools and disappeared. Until years later, he showed up in the news as a, like, quote-unquote, demon lawyer. <laughs> and Phoenix was so shocked by this, you know. He saw his old childhood friend on TV as like, you know, this famous, like, cutthroat, like, prosecutor. And he was hurt. He was shocked. He didn't know what had happened to his friend. So Phoenix says part of one of the biggest reasons he became a lawyer, that he became a defense attorney, was just to get close to Miles and figure out what happened to him. And holy shit, they just made his motivation way better and way gayer. Oh, well, you're right about that. But here, here's the thing, Elf. like, hmm, I I honestly don't know how I feel about this. So I feel like I've gone back and forth, like, really? so many times. You know what? Because, um, uh, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, so we had this class trial where um, you made a very strong impression uh, in Phoenix, right? Where, you know, he says he truly felt what it was like to be alone. I get that. Um, and then, you know, after that, incident the class trial then uh the three of them you know phoenix ray uh, miles edgeworth and larry butts you know become good friends um shortly thereafter you know uh this one when they were in fourth grade we know that uh shortly after that um miles edgeworth's uh, father died and he transferred schools so phoenix went you know years without you know really speaking to uh miles edgeworth and then you know like you said he finds out about him years later like he would um, reads his name in the newspaper. Oh, he has this reputation for being this, what they called a demon attorney. You know, uh, there's all sorts of stories about fabricating evidence and covering up the facts and all that. And then at this point, you know, Phoenix Wright, he tried to get in touch with him. Edgeworth never replied. Imagine the dedication that Phoenix Wright has. He could, he tried, he re- tried to reach out to this old friend who like wouldn't return his calls or whatever. Phoenix Wright, went to law school, became a defense attorney just so that he could meet Miles Edgeworth in court and, like, confront him face-to-face. Like, what? That is so bonkers to choose. Like, you know, I feel like I keep going back and forth about how I feel about Phoenix Wright's backstory, but it's like, okay, here's the thing, because there's, like, multiple levels, at least when I thought about it. The first thing, um, having this, you know, class trial in fourth grade where there's this kid's lunch money, $38 stolen from this envelope, and it's like, you know, I was like, that seems kind of weak, this, you know, petty (laughs) theft to want to become an attorney, like, that's your backstory. But then the debunking to that is, you know, he talks about, like, oh, this was the first time I truly felt like what it's like to be alone, where, um, you know, the class trial, like Larry and Miles, like didn't even remember it, but made a very strong impression on Phoenix. I get that, that you could have something that, you know, childhood memory that's very important to you. It's like, okay, fine. Maybe this is a strong backstory, but then you get further and it's like, hold on. He like, I feel like they should have ended it there. <laughs> and like, you know, that's when, why you became a defense attorney. But then you get further and it's like, it was because Edgeworth like wouldn't return his phone calls and he's like no I'm going to go to law school so that I'm forced to confront this man and it's like that's pretty wild <laughs> like that's like stalker behavior yeah and they they do I think 
then try to bolster Phoenix's motivation again <laughs> in Trials and Tribulations yeah. during the first case, Turnabout Memories, <laughs> when uh, Mia defends Phoenix for murder, yeah. uh, which also kind of influences his decision to go to law school. Okay, that, so that's a fair point. But like, so there's like a few different things that I think all sort of circumstantially lead to him becoming a defense no, attorney. No, that's a fair point, because I'd like, forgotten about that. Well, not that I'd forgotten about it, but, you know, maybe forgotten about the third yeah, game that I was... I mean, as far as we care, it hasn't happened yet, so... Yeah, but, okay, fine. Yeah, I feel like maybe... You're right. Right now, this case, Turnabout Goodbyes, kind of pre- presents a weirdly stalkerish picture of phoenix in terms of his motivation no, i actually like that you brought up the so, third game though because when maybe when you put all of these things together if there were like many small yeah. things that influenced his decision in his career path to become a defense attorney that's more understandable if it was just the one reason it was like no like this guy won't return my calls i need to confront him face to face like make your entire career choice with the hope that you see this person you used to know it'd be like I don't know, man. That seems a little extreme. <laughs> As you yeah. pointed out, also much but gayer. It's, oh my gosh, it's so much gayer. Holy shit. Yeah. Absolutely. That he saw his tortured soul of a friend and was like, I will dedicate my life to saving him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I need to save him. So, hey. Oh my God. Okay, bud. Sure. Um, Which, to be fair, I mean, have you seen Edgeworth? Now, you know, in Turnabout, like as an adult, as a, as a per- he's pretty hot so like i always thought they should they should have a future game where like they'll have like you know old phoenix right when i mean he's already kind of become a mentor to like you know apologists and like athena but they should have like a game that takes place in the far future where he's like old man phoenix where he's like they, sh- they should have him go bald but then he grows a beard but the beard has like the spikes oh my god in his hair it would just be like the the spikes just migrate south and he becomes he becomes the judge oh my god that would be amazing yeah and then you play as defense attorney cody hatkins <laughs> yes holy shit it. you guys no you can't you holy can't just shit. say these ideas in the podcast here this is like a million dollar idea someone's gonna steal it now <laughs> Somebody get Shu Takumi on the Somebody line. Somebody get Shu. Call him up. Somebody get Shu. Shu has not returned my calls. I'm going to become a game developer just so I can confront this man. Just so I can get a job at Capcom and confront Shu. That would actually be yeah. pretty awesome. I want to make the next Mega Man game. Act on, hey, Capcom, hit us up. All right, so I think we... we Capcom, we, if you're listening, tweet, tweet at us. All right, we've gone so far off the rails here. I think we've... we've anyway, we leave, we leave the right in Cola office. Yeah, we we leave. We're we're leaving the law office. There's nothing left. There's there's not even any new examine yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah. There's no new. We we. How, how's Charlie doing? The same. Maya is watering Charlie an appropriate amount. I went to the Gord Lake Park at this mm-hmm. point. Um. Yeah, I think I went to the um, detention center first. But I think we pretty much already talked about that, right? You. You just talked to Edgeworth. He also doesn't really remember the class trial. Um. For. Pretty much, and we're actually headed back to the detention center when we're done at the park sure. because uh, we we've got we've got something pretty spicy waiting for us in the park. Right, so let's do it. Um, yeah, we have a few brief scenes here. First at the Gord Lake Park, uh, Gumshoe is here. He is in really high spirits. He seems super determined to catch the caretaker by the trial yeah. tomorrow. 
Uh, and he also remarks to us that the woods are off limits because the park ranger caught Lada's campsite and got mad about it. Which, honestly, I think that is such a funny payoff to the no camping sign we saw in like the first. Oh my god, I wrote that down too. This is like Chekhov's no camping yeah. sign. It's like if you introduce a no <laughs> camping sign in the first act, it's got to pay off in like the fourth act. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I really love that. Um, I think it was a it's funny for one thing. It, it closes that sort of loop. Yeah. And it also blocks off the Gord Lake woods because they're no longer relevant. <laughs> oh, hold on. Hold on. I also want to just point out um, you're absolutely right about all that. But um, when you're talking to Gumshoe, um, you know, you go through all the dialogue, whatever. The way he transitions topics to tell you the campsite is off limits, he says, oh, one other thing. I was like, he is Columbo. There, oh, there it is. That's when he does a one more thing. That was absolutely intentional. Holy shit. There is no way that was a coincidence. Okay. Yep. Yep. Gumshoe is for sure Columbo. Confirmed. We got it. One more thing. Let's go. Oh, wait. Did, did Did we say this pun too? This is not even worth wasting our time on, but whatever. It's a it's a pun, and it made me chuckle. Uh, Maya said, yeah. I guess Lada's in a lot of trouble. Oh, my God. Ha- you know? And I was like, yes, there it is. Used- There's the Lada pun. Ha- have we used her name in that pun? It, like, have any of the characters in the game used that pun? Well, like, I don't think... I mean, you combine it with, like, her last name, like, Lada Hart, so I thought, like, that was the No, pun. I get it. But, yeah, I think that's the first time they, a character, like, actually used it like that. Holy shit. Man, they really waited. They waited five parts into this case to deploy was, that one. It was worth I, the wait. I admire the, the wait for that payoff. <laughs> um, so we head over to the Gord Lake Park. Uh, nothing remarkable here. The Steel Samurai balloon is gone, and the hot dog stand is I closed. I like that Phoenix calls it the Steel Eyesore. <laughs> he's so so judgy yeah exactly it's you know what you said before when he was like mean to maya that was like out of character this is like the good that we like to see the one who's just kind of sassy i love it yeah yeah this is this is the the amount of sass i like in my phoenix right where he's just judging the aesthetic quality of shit for no reason i love it that is the actual art student within him okay Exactly. That's exactly it. So we go from the uh, we go from the public beach into the uh, the exterior of the boat rental shop, and um, okay, <laughs> I don't have an answer for this. Maybe you yeah. do. Grossberg is here. Why is Grossberg here? Why is Grossberg here? I, I wrote that down too, and I thought it was going to be like explained <laughs> later. I, I thought because he is, as we'll learn, you know. Grossberg does have a connection to this case. Well, I guess we know about his connection to like the DL6 incident, whatever. And like, I thought that they right. would, you know, give some reason why he was like investigating, you know, since we just had this epic reveal in court that, you know, the whole thing, we thought this murder occurred on the boat in the middle of the lake. We learned that, you know, the shots that occurred on the boat, you know, after midnight, that that was just um, like a distraction, you know, to get a witness in order to like frame yeah. Miles Hedgeworth to murder. We now know the boat rental shop was the true scene of the crime so i thought that you know grossberg now that we had that revelation like maybe he would have some reason for investigating the true murder scene i i got i got nothothing i don't know why he's here the only reason he, he shows nothing. up to say his catchphrase that is the days of my youth like the scent of fresh lemon and i'm like all right grossberg why why are you yeah. here still don't know what that means 
even Maya is like, why do you think he was here? And Phoenix is like, I have no fucking clue. It's because like, even that's the game where the isn't really plot share. of the game needed him to be at the time. I, I think literally, right? Because, you know, we'll, we need him later yeah. to deliver some dramatic backstory about DL6. <laughs> and I guess the game just needed to telegraph that like, hey, go stop at the law office later. After you get the MacGuffin, go show it to Grosper. Like, I, I think that's literally why he's there. Yeah. I think he's there because this is on the critical path to our next big MacGuffin. Yeah. So you have you have to go through yeah. him to get to it. So I, I don't know. I guess. Okay. If I, if I want to be charitable yeah. here, I would say this is his attempt at investigating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know that he is an out-of-practice lawyer because he's basically been spending the last 15 years riding on that red-white uh-huh. money. So, And he can't do that anymore, yeah. right? Because red-white is in jail. So, like, maybe he's just kind of trying to get back into the swing of, like, doing actual, like, lawyer detective work, right? And maybe he's like, well, I know that this place was important, so I guess I'll stop by. And he, I, I imagine him just kind of like ambling around the boathouse, like kicking rocks or whatever. Like, yeah, he's just like, fuck, how do you fuck? How do I investigate? I haven't done this in 15 years. Fuck. <laughs> Damn it. That, that would actually be funny if they did like an outtake. Or <laughs> like he's overturning potted plants. Like, is this a clue? Is this anything? Eventually he's just like, ah, man. Heck this. I'll let Phoenix do the work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, come back to I, my like, office yeah, if you like, find exactly. anything. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, this is a young person's game, whatever. <laughs> Getting too old for this stuff. Yeah, that's that's my head. Yeah, but I do love, as you as so, you pointed out, that Maya even says, like, what do you think Mr. Grossberg was doing there? And I'm like, yeah, what yeah. was he doing there? What was he doing there? And literally, all he says is, well, if you find anything out, come to my office. I may be able to offer some assistance. Yeah. And you say, okay. And that's it. There's a few examined texts here. You could examine the trees. <laughs> Phoenix notes that there are some policemen looking for the caretaker. Yeah. I thought that was neat. It shows that the police are being very thorough <laughs> in their search for the caretaker. Yeah. Um, and then you could examine the shop. <laughs> and uh, Maya says the caretaker must have run for the hills. Yeah. She remarks that he didn't seem like such a bad person. It seemed like an... In- Which I thought... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they included that line for a reason. It seemed a little weird yeah i mean i guess it's true he didn't seem like a bad person i think he's kind of got everyone fooled (laughs) yeah as we've talked about before maya is a remarkably good judge of character so i thought it was interesting (laughs) i think so i think she's pretty good maybe eventually i'm trying to think of like the first time she met like will powers and she sees this face, which apparently looks scary, out of the mask, and she's like, "That's it. He definitely did but it. Then, maybe even twice." Once she talked, once she talked to yeah. him, she was like, "Nah, he's a good guy." So, you know, well, like, well, yeah. So she like eventually lands on the right answer, but she's not always immediately a good judge of character. Yeah, I don't know. But at this current juncture, she thinks the caretaker, all told, didn't seem like such a bad person, <laughs> which. Weirdly is kind of the vibe I get from him at this point, I think. Yeah. But anyway, we uh, we go into the shack. Obviously. Obviously we go into the shack. Holy shit, we go into the shack. Do you know why? I, I could not stop thinking about this fucking thing because I forgot about it. What 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 thing? It's for the safe. Ah. I feel like 
literally, it's been like a decade since I played this case. I forgot what was in the safe. And I'm like, the caretaker is gone. Polly knows the code. Let's get in that fucking safe, baby. (laughs) Well, yes. And I do have to point out, this is one of many instances where this game seems pretty loosey-goosey when it comes to, like, evidence law. (laughs) Just like, um, you know, well, whatever. It's fine. Where is the border between investigating and robbery? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, actually, okay, yeah, so you go into the caretaker shack, you examine the safe, Polly knows the combo, Uh it's 1228, right? Yeah. And, um, even Maya is like, you know, oh, do you think there's any cash in here? Like, what? Like, would she have just robbed the caretaker if he had, like, a thousand bucks in there in, like, stone-cold cash? Like, what are you talking about? She'd go spend it on burgers. Yeah, right. Like, would you have really robbed this old, you know, delirious man blind given the opportunity? I don't know. No, we we know that she would have because if you examine the fishing pole, she goes, (laughs) oh, maybe we should bring it to Detective Gumshoe. (laughs) It's, It's just like... Which is, of course, a throwback to earlier when you could steal, not steal, you could borrow one of his tools for investigating one of which was his cheapo fishing pole. And it's like, I don't know, man, you probably still shouldn't be stealing things from people's homes, even if this guy is a suspect. I, I, You know, actually, now that I think about it, I feel like a good percentage of the examined texts are (laughs) uh, Maya saying, hey, let's take this. And and you're right, because in the same same boat shack, you examine the parrot and... She goes, hey, maybe I should take care of Polly. And Nick is like, I don't think you should kidnap this bird. You know what, though? Okay, actually, on the other hand, hard to be too judgmental. Yeah. Because Phoenix himself is stealing stuff left and right. Yeah. You know? So I'm, I'm like, not even sure. There are times I question whether we're, like, the good guys here. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. who Who is to judge at which point you are taking important evidence at which point you are just stealing someone's personal belongings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, obviously <laughs> the safe contained, and look, this is so, this is so fucking obvious. We all knew it would be the case. The safe contains a letter outlining the entire murder wait, plot wait, wait, discovered wait. over I'm the pre- past two days in elaborate detail. And it says, quote, get your revenge on Miles Edgeworth. We all saw it coming. Obviously that was what was in the safe. I didn't see that coming, but <laughs> what? But that is what we. That is in fact what we find in the safe. Now you were joking before about like the MacGuffin or whatever. This is a. I don't even know if I'm using that term correctly. This is a pretty significant MacGuffin. <laughs> like this is. Oh, this is a crazy huge clue. Yeah, this is. <laughs> this like I'm having a lot of fun with this scene. Yeah. This is a crazy huge clue, and this is a super dramatic twist. I actually fucking love this. I, I did too. Yeah, because th- this is a clue that like blows this whole case like wide open. Like it blows the whole thing so, wide so open. So it's a letter that you know outlines the details of this entire plot. Right? It says, um, you know, this is your chance to get your revenge on the two men who ruined your life. Um, referring to uh, Robert Hammond and Miles Hedgeworth. Um, I did actually uh, also appreciate there was one detail that um, I missed the first time uh, that we discovered this letter. Um, or sorry, I should say the first time I played through and found this letter. Did you did you pick up on this? The the kind of clue beyond just you know what's written in the letter. I guess not. So 
um, you know, you read in this letter that, you know, you, you're pretty much established at this point after this day in court that, you know, you're there to defend Miles Edgeworth, um, you know, for the murder of Robert Hammond. And, and you've basically, you know, using like the timing of all the gunshots and Larry's testimony, you have basically proven that someone was trying to frame Miles Edwards, you know, set him up for murder. And now you've discovered this letter that outlines exactly that plot. There was someone who was being directed, um, you know, to kill Robert Hammond, to frame uh, Miles Edgeworth for this whole thing, this whole elaborate plot. Um, the clue that I did not notice the first time I played through this game is that the note you discover in the safe is handwritten in what they describe as very precise, clear letters. I see. And, and they even, they make, uh, there, were, there were two separate comments. He said, um, very precise, clear uh, handwritten letters. And at the end, after you're done reading the letter, uh, Phoenix said, it's all here in perfect detail. And there is someone we know I love who that. is obsessed with perfection. Yes. Yes, and we will learn this person's yeah. connection to the letter in just a couple of so, scenes. So they, but, they do reveal this pretty okay. soon, but I do appreciate the foreshadowing that um, that you, yeah, you could. I, I do too. So we'll jump the gun. Larry Butts wrote the letter, obviously. You know, again, <laughs> we, we, we all saw that coming. Heavy. Heavy. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> but yeah, I love I love this twist because it it pretty much... What this single piece of evidence does is it confirms every single conclusion we reached over the past two days. So, right? so we've been playing on it, hard mode, right? Where, like, you know, bit by bit, we would, you know, chip away at, you know, all these witnesses' testimony and find, like, the holes right. here. And, you know, maybe I can get a foothold here and, you know, get some more information. And then, you know, finally, we had this epic reveal, right, at the end of the previous courtroom scene where Phoenix right? um you know, finally spelled out for the judge, you know, exactly how this um, plot to frame Miles Edgeworth, you know, played out. And yeah, the whole thing is just like written here in this letter. And we were definitely playing on hard mode. If we just, you know, opened the safe and discovered the letter, we could have saved ourselves a lot of work. Yep. yep. If if we were able to open the safe, even investigation day two, yeah. right, when we met the caretaker, yeah. would have cut out the entire second day's trial. Yeah. You know, like, it's all right here. Um. So, so hold on, hold on. What this, I love about this, this should piece, be it. Like the trial should end here. <laughs> like this, this letter right. very clearly shows that this whole thing was a plot. The whole thing was a setup. We have it here that someone, some mastermind that we're about to learn very soon was directing this caretaker of the boat rental shop. He said, this is your opportunity to get revenge. You are going to kill Robert Hammond. You're going to shoot him. You're going to frame Miles Edgeworth for the crime. That's it. Our client should be not guilty at this point. The case is yeah, over. But that, that's not how Phoenix Wright works, so it's fine. Yeah. What I do like about this piece of evidence from a narrative standpoint is it basically tells you, the player, yeah. hey, case closed. You you figured out today's case. Yeah. Like, you figured out present day's case. Oh, but as we know, this is an Ace Attorney game, so everything has to be connected to right. that incident. In this case, the DL6 incident from... 15 years ago this is basically the game yeah this is the game telling us now you have to solve the l6 you figured out present yeah. day now oh, we you, gotta solve you the think L6. you solved the case but what about second case <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we've had one exactly. trial yes <laughs> i don't i don't think he knows about second trial 
I, hey, he's about to learn. Yeah. <laughs> We're, Phoenix is about to learn about second trial, okay? Like Manfred von Karman just showing up like, oh, you're about to learn today. You're about to learn about the second case. <laughs> yeah, Manfred walks in with like sunglasses on. And he's like, all right, baby time's over. Oh Let's God. go. Yeah. Manfred von Karma, hold on, this is the random aside, but I have to say, like, I could totally see that Manfred von Karma basically is dressed like a pimp with, like, his ridiculous coat, like, the jewels, okay. like, earrings. He's got the ridiculous, like, diamond cane he's carrying. Like, I could totally just see him coming in and trying to, like, intimidate Phoenix. But anyway, sorry, as you were saying. Alrighty, so we've got our big shining MacGuffin. We've got the letter from the safe. And um, you, have, you have a few options at this point. After this, I went to the detention center to see Miles. Um, this seems pretty salient to his case. We have some unfinished business with him. Uh, yeah, like you said, we could have visited Miles a little bit earlier to get some um, more preliminary dialogue with him. Yeah. Um, basically, Maya tells uh, Miles about the class trial, which, as we have discussed, Miles really didn't seem to remember um, it's kind of cute. He says, you haven't changed a bit, have you, right? So simple. Yeah. To a fault, even. <laughs> and um, I did, I, I liked uh, Phoenix's response. He says, well, maybe, yeah, but I think you've changed too much, Edgeworth. Which, yeah. Yeah, That's right? That's like a fair point. Like, Edgeworth did a complete 180, you know, like, looking up to his father, the famous defense attorney, like, that's what he wanted to do is, you know, defend people just as he defended uh phoenix in this class trial you know the people who had like no allies to stand up for them it's like yeah you yeah, have changed and that line coincides with phoenix's motivation that he yeah. became a defense attorney because he wants to find out why miles changed as much as he did so yeah. we get a few dialogue options with edgeworth we can ask him uh why prosecute and uh mm -hmm. as in why he became a prosecutor um yeah. And Edgeworth explains that he couldn't be a defense attorney after his father's suspected murderer, which was Yanni Yogi, was declared innocent by Robert Hammond. You know, he saw what defense attorneys were capable of. What he saw was basically a great crime, essentially. Hammond got yeah. a murderer declared innocent. That's insane. So yeah. he couldn't he couldn't trust defense after that. And that's why he kind of uh, went towards prosecution. And of course, yeah. that is where Manfred von Karma was there to take him in. And we could ask yeah, him about exactly. that as well. Um, yeah. Edgeworth explains that von Karma was his mentor, uh, kind of like Mia was to Phoenix. And yeah. Edgeworth says that uh, von Karma, as we know, always gets a guilty verdict. And uh, I thought this was interesting. Edgeworth even admits that um, von Karma's, you know, insistence on perfection, on always getting the guilty verdict may have resulted yeah. in innocent people being declared guilty. Um, yeah. I just thought that was interesting because at this stage, Edgeworth believes the job of a prosecutor is to get a guilty verdict, but he does recognize that even so, the accused may not actually always be guilty. You know? Yeah, well, you know what? You know what? I'm glad you pointed that out because I kind of wonder, like, if you would talk to Edgeworth, like, just a little bit, earlier if you would have felt the same way i do feel that edgeworth kind of you're starting to like chip away at this like you know kind of armor that he's put up uh this cold exterior that he has you know in the in the turnabout samurai 
when towards the end it was clear that D Vasquez was the real murderer, um, you know, when he was presented with clear evidence, um, then Edgeworth almost had like a change of heart where he no longer just cared about getting the guilty verdict. He right. cared about the truth. Yeah, very famously in that final trial, he uh, you know, presents objections yeah. against things that are helping his case. You know? Yeah. He asks questions that actively hurt his case as a prosecutor. So yeah, I right. get the so sense. That's the thing, right? Like, you know, when he was, you know, when Manfred von Karma was like his mentor and, you know, that kind of shaped Edgeworth's career where he became this vicious prosecutor who just wanted the guilty verdict. And now you're talking to him that he's, you know, in the detention center and he's admits at this point, like, oh, we might have sent some innocent people to prison. Like, I right. wonder if he even would have like thought or cared about that previously I, I do really like this i think that um we're starting to see edgeworth have a change of heart like he has such yeah. interesting character growth like i don't mean he's an emo boy but i don't care i love edgeworth i i love i love a good emo boy <laughs> but yeah it, that's exactly it that's why i thought it was just such an interesting line because it showed that it is something that is on its mind now yeah. um but yeah so he says that's what he has to say about von karma um at this point we can present the letter from the safe now that we grabbed it from the caretaker's uh, shop. And yeah. uh, basically he explains that he doesn't remember the caretaker and he doesn't know why the caretaker would have a letter like this. Mm -hmm. um, he remarks that the letter mentions, quote, the two men that ruined his life. Yeah. And he also notes the line that says, this is your last chance. He realizes yeah. that the former statement must refer to himself and Hammond, yeah. and that the latter statement must be referring to DL6. <laughs> From these two pieces of information, he concludes that the person who owns this letter, the caretaker, yeah. is the bailiff from DL6, Yanni Yogi. Yes, now it's which, all coming together. Yes, which I think was such a cool deduction. It, yeah. You know, he took two pieces of information... And used them to synthesize a conclusion. Oh man, we, we didn't get to see this as the player, but what's going on behind the scenes? This is the logic mechanic from uh, <laughs> the Ace Attorney investigation game. It really did. Seeing him do that, it felt like the logic mechanic from Ace Attorney Investigations, which I I just thought was funny. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's a good catch. Oh my god, you're probably right. But yeah, so this is like kind of this is a big sort of realization. If you, the player, yep. hadn't put this together by this point, which, you know, from one brain dead <laughs> character to another, it's not a super big leap to make. Um, yeah. But yeah, we get the opportunity to ask Edgeworth about Yanni Yogi at this point. <laughs> um, basically, yeah. he, he recounts the story that we had read in the previous investigation about the DL6, right, <laughs> that we read in the DL6 case file. Um, yep. He explains that Yogi was a bailiff who... Just happened to be in the elevator on that day, the day of the earthquake. Yeah. Um, Edris says he remembers the earthquake, he remembers the power out, and he remembers Yogi and his father arguing. <laughs> However, at that point, you know, the oxygen was thinning and he passed out. And he woke up in the <laughs> hospital, and at that point, his father was dead, Yogi was accused, um, you know, all that was kind of going on and he doesn't remember any of it, right? Uh, at mm -hmm. that point, uh, Yogi was found innocent due to a insanity plea. 
Uh, basically, yeah. Hammond had insisted that Yogi was not of sound mind and that he that... suffered uh, brain damage due to oxygen deprivation. And um, that is, you know, how he was able to be found guilty. Uh, do, you know, Not guilty. Or sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how he was able to be found not guilty. Yeah. Um, and then Edgeworth concludes by sort of adding that despite this, he still has a nightmare yes. uh, to this day that he is ready to talk about. Yeah. So we yeah, finally... So th this is a pretty big reveal up to this point. I do like the kind of storytelling how we had like the black and white kind of photos, stills, you know, used um, where, you know, we see these three people. Um, you've got Gregory Edgeworth, Miles Edgeworth, and Yanni Yogi, you know, trapped in the elevator. They're like clearly, you know, starting to panic, like, help, I can't breathe. Um, I just, I don't know, I thought that was good. And then, you know, now we have this reveal that Edgeworth has had a nightmare. Um, uh, you know, where we, again, we see this flashback to in court when he, or in the defendant lobby, I guess, when he said like, I'd, a nightmare I've had, a, a memory of a crime that I committed, a murder. And, um, you know, he reveals, you can ask him about the nightmare, and he reveals that for the last 15 years, I've had the same dream almost every night, which, holy moly, like having yeah. a nightmare. And as he describes, he's like waking up in a cold sweat yeah. like every night. Like, that's brutal. Every night for 15 years, like, his, geez, his poor guy. sleep quality has got to be fucking garbage. That's why his hair went white at age like twenty four. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that that's not dye, that's not bleach, baby. That's just his. That's just the real deal. <laughs> um, but you know, we're like giving with a hard time calling him like an emo boy and all that. But this poor guy clearly has yeah with some significant trauma. It, it's legitimately a really sad story, as you yeah. said. He has this nightmare that he's had for fifteen years that has woken him up you know every single night and that yeah. nightmare is it's a vision very similar to what he experienced on the elevator that day but in the nightmare while his father and yanni are arguing uh they kind of i think they like get into a struggle and <laughs> edgeworth finds a gun he doesn't know if yeah. it was you know yanni's bailiff gun or if it was evidence or whatever but he picks up the gun and he he just throws it and he, he wants them to stop fighting. Yeah. And the gun hits the ground and it discharges mm -hmm. directly yep. into his father and kills him. And yep. Edgeworth doesn't know if this is a memory he blocked out or if yep. it's just a nightmare that haunts him, if it's a possibility that, yep. you know, he can't get past. But this feeling, this suspicion that he is directly responsible for the death of his own father has like yeah. basically, you know, haunted him ever since that event. Yeah, and they don't explicitly point this out in the game, but I imagine like like the like the nightmares obviously can kind of be terrible, but also just like not knowing the truth. Like I think oh, Edgeworth, yeah. Edgeworth honestly doesn't know if he was responsible for his father's death or or what happened. Yeah, it's I mean it's terrible. Like Yeah. It really is. Like, I know, yeah, we are having a lot of fun about Edgeworth being a tsundere and an edgy boy and stuff, but like, that's some heavy, it's heavy literally shit. His name. That's, that's what an old bag called him, edgy boy. <laughs> edgy boy. He's an edgy boy. But like, uh, it's just such a sad story, especially since he had such admiration for his father. He wanted to be just like his father. 
Like I could, I could imagine him like really excitedly going into court with his father that day. Cause you know, he just wants to see his father, you know, up on the bench defending. Like, I don't yes. know. It just, it really does. It paints this very sad sort mm-hmm. of image. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what Edgeworth leaves us on. He, he tells us about this nightmare and really Phoenix and Maya, they're really not totally sure what to make of it. Right. Like, is it yeah. a nightmare? Is he responsible for his, you know, father's death? Like there's really, there's no way to know and there's nothing they can do. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Phoenix supposes that if there was, oh, if there was maybe somebody who knew a little bit more about DL6, maybe if they knew <laughs> yeah. somebody. This, this was kind of a convenient way of nudging you in the direction to advance the plot. Ah, oh, if only yeah. we knew someone who knew about DL6. We go to the Grossberg Law Office. Yes. <laughs> we go to the Grossberg Law Office. Um, which, that's fine. That's fine. It makes sense. Um, so yeah, we, um, you know, we're, we're interested in a few more, uh, details from that day, right. From the day of DL six from, you know, Gregory and Manfred's relationship, uh, that sort of thing. So we go to visit Grossberg and, um, Grossberg is, he's such a weird character. You go into his office and he just seems completely unbothered. He's like, huh, you guys look troubled. Like, you got you guys you guys are having a tough time. Am I like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, Have you and seen also what we've like, been dealing with? also we met you outside the boat rental shop, and you literally said like, you know, come to my office if you want to discuss something. And then he's like, oh, you look troubled. And it's like, like, yeah. <laughs> Phoenix and Maya are dealing with the fucking case of a lifetime, and Grossberg's just like, huh. What's got you like, all how, bothered? Like, like bro. how are you not troubled? <laughs> yeah. So I like, I guess this isn't technically his case, right? <laughs> like his interaction with DL6 directly, it begins and ends with red, white, but like, isn't he at least a little invested, right? Like even <laughs> yeah, just Grisberg. from like a curiosity standpoint, you know, like, yeah, I can't figure out Grisberg. I don't know. I can't. I got nothing. So we we use him as just a wealth of information in this scene. And he has some interesting stuff to say. We can um we can ask him about Gregory Edgeworth, right? Yeah. And um basically Grossberg says that Gregory was a great defense attorney matched only by Mia. Um, yeah, I thought that, that was a good detail. I like they do I, that in. I like that too. And uh he adds that Gregory disapproved of Von Karma's techniques and tried to call attention to those techniques in his final trial and as just a sidebar here an ace attorney game around gregory mia and grossberg would be fucking fire are you kidding me does does the timeline work out though because wouldn't was it mia, was mia practicing law when gregory edgeworth was uh, you know what? mia would have been like she would have been yeah like kid aged because she's roughly the same age as like edgeworth and uh Edgeworth and Phoenix. Okay, okay. Yeah. And East Turney games centered could have been around like a cool older sister because I think yeah. she's like she's what uh, she was twenty seven. Phoenix is twenty seven. So they're yeah. Three years so she would have been like she was like when a they were eight. She could have been like the cool older sister. <laughs> All right. So then an East Turney game centered around Gregory, 
Grossberg and Raymond Shields. This Does is causing work? all sorts of time paradoxes. No, that that one's got to work, right? I bet they all practiced law together. They were all defense attorneys. I'm pretty well, sure we know was Raymond in... Shields was. Yeah, wasn't Raymond Shields literally like? Didn't he practice under Grossberg or something? Yeah, he was his like um, understudy or something. Yeah, there you go. So the three of them put him in a situation Wait, who was like the third um, one? It was Gregory Edgeworth, Raymond Shields, and who was the third? Uh, Grossberg. How did Grossberg get in? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we, we got to have a trio, right? So we have Gregory, yeah. Raymond, Grossberg, the three of them in a game, you know, similar dynamic to like Phoenix, uh, Athena, and Apollo, right? Like that kind of situation. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, set it in, what would that be? Like the 1970s or some shit, <laughs> 80s, right? This rules. I'm I'm building this game in my mind right now. I'm going to go get Shu Takumi on the line, actually. It would have been like, it probably would have been like the 90s. Gregory oh, Edward is not as old as you think he is. Even better. Give Raymond a Tamagotchi. I don't care. <laughs> he would love it. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, Raymond Shields is a character from Miles Edgeworth Investigations 2, a Ace Attorney <laughs> game that was never officially localized to English. It was, True. however, uh, given a fan translation by a bunch of wonderful, dedicated individuals. And uh, holy shit, it's such a good game. Oh my God. It's what excellent. And don't 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 spoil the last case. I'm on I'm on the fourth case in that game. Okay. Now. I will I will say no more. But we, but we should absolutely talk about case three where you get to play as Gregory Edgeworth. Oh my god, I freaking love that it like overlaps with uh, the story from this game. So, sorry, so we'll get to that later. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're going we're going too far off the rails. I, I need you to keep me on track, Heavy. Okay. All right. So the next thing we could talk to Grossberg about is uh, the spirit medium. Hold on. Did we uh, did we we presented the letter from the safe? Did we did we talk about what Grossberg had to say about Robert Hammond? Yeah, we will present the letter in a hot second. Okay, so we're not there yet. Yeah. This. Okay. It, so basically, the way that like all of the interactions go in this case is you have a set of interactions you could do before getting the letter and a set of interactions you could do after getting the letter. Right. Right. And basically, that's consistent in the detention center, in the Grossberg law offices and in the criminal affairs department. <clears throat> right. So these two things we can ask Grossberg about before presenting the letter. So we can talk to him about Edgeworth or about Gregory Edgeworth and about the spirit <laughs> medium. Um okay. So if we ask about the spirit medium, this is kind of just, um, this isn't really new information for us, but it is a nice refresher now that we're reprising the full totality of DL6. Uh, <laughs> but basically he goes over what we had heard before, that Misty Fay channeled the um, channeled Gregory Edgeworth and Gregory accused Yogi and yep. um, Yogi was found innocent and <laughs> that defamed Misty. Yeah, that's when um, Maya said, that's when my mother left. Everyone called her a fraud. Yeah. Because they thought she was. And Grossberg suspects that Gregory, when he was being channeled, lied when he accused Yogi as a way to protect Miles Edgeworth. Yeah, he didn't want to say, my son, like, accidentally shot me. He wanted to say, like, Yogi did, which... Right. It's an interesting theory that um, it is Grossberg presents, and I do. I like this interaction. I like this dialogue because um, we've heard this story before, right? We heard the story yeah. about Maya's mom, you know, 
um, being a consultant for the police and giving them uh, bad information. And that's what defamed her. Yeah. We learned that as yeah. early as case two, right? right? But now we have names for every single person involved in this incident, right? We have Misty Faye, who channeled the victim, Gregory Edgeworth, who accused yeah. the murderer, Yanni Yogi, who was found yeah. not guilty by the defense attorney, Robert Hammond. You know, like, we now have names it, it all, for everyone. It's all coming together. Oh, my God. It's it so really good. is. I think it's really cool how we now, this story has been entirely outlined, colored in, and, like, labeled with all the details. So and I love the way that, like, you get, like, bits and pieces of the story, like, here and there, and, like, all the previous right. cases, and it builds up to this, like, you know, final, um, <clears throat> you know, case four in this game where, you know, everything comes together. Their Their method of storytelling is so good. Yeah, it's really cool. And there's also, you know, there's a new facet to it now. Now that we find out Missy Fay was defamed because Yogi was found innocent. But yeah. Yogi was found innocent because he was declared insane, which kind of feels like maybe not the most legitimate defense, which we'll find out more about in a second. Speaking yeah. of which, we can present the letter from the safe to Grossberg. And, um, now, hold on a second. You, I didn't yeah. realize this until you just pointed it out, but like... You know, we're going to learn later what truly happened in the DL6 incident. But at this point, you know, most we as the player and, you know, most people like in this world, as far as they know, you know, Yanni Yogi did shoot Gregory Edgeworth, but he was declared not guilty or, you know, not fit to stand trial due to temporary insanity. Like, okay, fine. That could be true, but like. If that is, it doesn't necessarily mean Misty Faye is wrong or that she's a fraud, right? Like, it could have been the case that, like, he did actually, like, Yanni Yogi did actually shoot Gregory Edgeworth, but then, you know, was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah. Like, it could be the case that she's not actually a fraud. But then we learn later what actually happened. So, I don't know, man. It's maybe it's all a wash. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> no, that's true. As far as the public knows, Misty said, hey, it was Yanni Yogi. Yeah. And then through the trial, the defense said, yeah, you're right. It was Yanni Yogi, but he was fucking cuckoo when he did it. So it's good. So right. As so far as point, we, like, right. As far as we know, Misty was right. Yeah. So why this, this game, man, maybe I shouldn't examine it as closely as I am. Misty did not say Yogi was innocent. Misty said yeah. Yogi shot Gregory, which as far yeah. as the trial found, he did. Yeah. All right, well, whatever. Back to the game. <laughs> whatever. Um, so, yeah, so we know Grossberg had presented his theory that the the ghost of Gregory Edgeworth lied to protect his son. Did we ask That's... about um, Prosecutor Von Karma yet? Oh, no, we have to go back because this is where you present the letter. Yeah, this is where I present the letter. Basically, yeah, yeah. Um, basically Grossberg explains that Yogi uh, would be motivated to kill Hammond yes. because... Uh, that innocent verdict, the yeah. insanity verdict, uh, pretty much socially ruined him, right? Yeah. Um, I do like this. And we get, we finally get some characterization of this uh, defense attorney, Robert Hammond, like the murder right. victim in this original trial. So we learned that he was a skilled defense attorney, but he didn't trust his clients. You know what? Maybe this is the closest thing we get to like a bad defense attorney. I was like, just thinking that. Like, uh, you know, he got this not guilty verdict, but... 
it wasn't because he proved that, you know, Yanni Yogi didn't shoot him. He just said, oh, he's not fit to stand trial, temporary insanity due to like oxygen deprivation. So it was like he's found not guilty, but, um, you know, it still kind of ruined his reputation. So, right. Um, yeah, he it ruined avoided his... any jail time, but then he kind of became this recluse and got this, you know, boat rental shop where he's lived ever since then. Right. Yeah, it, it ruined his bailiff career. He was no longer able to work as a bailiff. And ruined yeah, his marriage, he... too, as I think they say, if they hadn't said that already. Oh, no. That's so sad. That it is actually sad. Yeah, like this picture we get of Yogi living in uh living in the caretaker shack, like it's pretty sad. Just there like with his parrot and his yeah. boat rental business. So it, it really does. It paints this picture of him and does kind of a bastard. Yeah. So okay, yeah, we get that commentary from Grossberg, which I think is very interesting. And then we could ask him about Von Karma. Um Oof. oh, I'm sorry super important thing super important thing when we show Grossberg the letter yeah. he identifies the handwriting as belonging to Von Karma dun 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 yeah yeah yep. I do like the the hint we got earlier that we know uh Von Karma is this you know absolute perfectionist and they they hinted at saying it was this perfectly neat handwriting and now yep. uh Grossberg confirms yes it is in fact or um hey you actually get a choice right Grossberg says like wait I've seen this handwriting before do you know who wrote it and you get a choice you can choose um either it was written by miles edgeworth uh, yanni yogi or the correct answer which is manfred von karma yeah and it is funny if you say a wrong answer he's basically like ah think think again you dumb idiot like you scooch <laughs> yeah. on like I come mean, on the, the other choices the other choices you get are kind of ridiculous like yanni yogi was the one who received the letter like why would he write it and then you have to choose like miles edgeworth like wait what like I, why would Miles Edgeworth write like a letter plotting to frame himself? Right, his own framing. Now that would be twelve-dimensional shoots and ladders. For actually, sure. that, is, that is something we might actually see in an Ace Attorney game. So let me take that. Yeah, back. I want to rule it out game when they get really, really off the walls. Yeah, framing your own murder for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's that's kind of one of the big takeaways. That's one of the big details we get from Grossberg is that Grossberg is familiar with Manfred's handwriting. And is able yes. to identify this letter as coming from Manfred, which so, is so we now huge. we now understand that yeah it's huge. So we now know that um, this bailiff, you know, clearly had a grievance with um, you know uh, Miles Edgeworth and um, Robert Hammond. So you know, understandable why he'd go along with this plot. And we know that uh, Manfred von Karma was kind of the mastermind pulling all the strings here. So it's all coming together. But let me ask you this question. Yeah. If Von Karma's, you know, so obsessed with doing everything perfectly, why didn't he disguise his handwriting in this letter? Or, ju- or just type it. Or yeah. just type just it, type right? It. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but basically Von Here. Karma does say that he had instructed Yogi to burn the letter. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe Von Karma, like wanted every you know what i think it is with von karma like he he's obsessed with perfection but then if anything doesn't go perfect it like all falls apart i think think that's actually the answer i think von karma was so vain that like he wanted this letter to be written in his perfect handwriting and then he told yanni yogi to burn it he he couldn't allow it to be like you know 
anything less than perfection. Yeah, so that actually is like in line with his character. All right. I, I think he, in a certain sense, he expects other people to think and act as he does, right? Yes. Like yeah. he kind of expects a similar level of scrutiny from other people, which is yeah. probably why, you know, when he said the trial is going to end in three minutes, he uh-huh. expected if everybody in this courtroom behaves the way I expect them to, it will. Yeah. No, and I then think as you're totally right. As, right. And he thinks, okay, if I write in my instructions, burn this letter after reading, he expects, yeah, yeah Yanni Yogi is going to do that. But maybe, yeah, <laughs> maybe Yogi wanted to hold on to the letter because it's really complicated and he wanted to get all the details right. Or maybe he held on to the letter because he wanted to use it as leverage against Von Karma. Or maybe he held on to it just because he forgot to burn it, you know, like. Not everybody yeah. is as perfect as he is. And I don't know that Von Karma necessarily recognizes that. Yeah. So that would be my guess, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And yeah. <laughs> but you're right. A, a, he could have sort of nipped that at the bud by just like typing it on his like IBM, you know, smart computer or whatever, you know, like. Well, that's the other thing, too, is I feel like this um, man, not to, I don't I actually don't think we're like reading too much into this i think we're probably right about this and similar to the previous episode when you were talking about red white is like a sociopath and how you kind of changed my mind where like i was like ah whatever he's just this buffoonish character who somehow got the better of me if a but maybe there is more depth to these characters i do think i, I think it's actually kind of interesting that like someone who was not a perfectionist might have like ironically done a better job of pulling off this uh plot or scheme right because right um because you know someone else would have realized well, i can't have this letter in my handwriting like that's incriminating I'll, you know i'll type the letter i'll disguise my handwriting whatever but like von karma is like no everything about this has to be perfect it has to be written in my perfect handwriting and yes. i assume that i assume that you know um yanni yogi will like go along with the perfect plan and he'll burn the letter and then as soon as something goes wrong it's like well you fucked up <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, a a less a less sharp and motivated person yeah. probably wouldn't have composed such an elaborate plot that wouldn't stand up to real world scrutiny. And that's you so know? interesting. This is the things like this are like why I love talking to you at Ace Attorney because you make yeah. me realize things like I didn't consider the first time. It's like, yeah, it's like similar. I mean, I feel like this does come up later, but it's like when you catch the villain like monologuing it and it's like, you know. It's, they become like their own like undoing it's like you know yeah if you weren't this like perfectionist like he might have gotten away with this crime so it, it actually leads into another thing i want to talk about after we Go present on. the letter from the safe we have the opportunity uh-huh. to ask grossberg about the feud between gregory and manfred right why manfred yeah. had it out for gregory in the first place uh-huh. And uh, basically, he explains that Gregory got Von Karma penalized for faulty evidence, right? Yes. And Von Karma was so shocked that he, uh-huh. you know, received a penalty for the first time yeah. on his perfect record. He received a penalty on that uh-huh. case. Uh, he was so shocked he took a vacation for several months, which was the yeah. first and only vacation he ever took. Now, I, I like this. I We've heard about this before, about Gregory uh-huh. getting Von Karma penalized. Yeah. And... It's something I find, again, so interesting about his character, kind of what we're talking about, where his perfection is his undoing. (laughs) He was so upset to get one penalty. One penalty. Whereas you and I, we're playing this game, we're inhabiting Phoenix Wright. 
Phoenix hey. eats penalties for breakfast. Yes, exactly. You know? Phoenix yeah. goes into court and he, in his pursuit for the truth, he says stuff that's wrong. He makes oh, he bad leaps of logic. all day, you know? every day. He, he presents evidence that, yeah, isn't right and he gets penalties. And I kind of think that is intentional, yeah. right? That the fact that Phoenix is not so focused on perfection, on always mm-hmm. having the right answer, on always saying the right thing, makes yeah. him a better lawyer, right? Because in that way, he is more open to the truth, to free thought. He is more open mm-hmm. to, um, you know, finding out what's what's true, not necessarily yeah. doing what's right. So, I don't know. Can I, I ask I just you a think... question? This is, this is way off topic yeah. in this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So feel free to edit this out of this episode. No, you're good. But, but as a tangent, later on, when we play, you know, um, Ace Attorney Investigations 2, case number three, you get, um, you know, this case where it's like present day Miles Edgeworth and it like overlaps with, you know, the case they're alluding to here before the DL6 incident where, you know, you had um, uh, Gregory Edgeworth and Manfred von Karma go up against each other in court. You know, at this point in Phoenix Ray Ace Attorney, we don't learn the details of that case because it's not relevant. I love that they explain it later. I think that's awesome. But, um, you know, what they basically say is that um, we know that, you know, von Karma was the prosecutor. Gregory Edgeworth was the defense attorney. We know that... um, Edgeworth lost the case, so there was still a guilty verdict declared, but Gregory Edgeworth, you know, accused Von Karma of what they described in this game as faulty evidence, and you yes. know, it was a blemish on his perfect record. Knowing what we know now about uh, Ace Attorney Investigations 2, did Von Karma actually present faulty evidence? So, the case you are referring to is the inherited turnabout, as it is yeah. named in the fan translation. And yeah. I'm going to be real with you. It has been so long since I've played that case. I yeah. do not actually remember. I played it recently and it was, I kid you not, like, we talk about how these, you know, Ace Attorney plots are like convoluted with their like epic reveals and turnabouts and everything. Oh. That was one of my favorite cases in all of the Ace Attorney games I've ever played, but it was also the most convoluted <laughs> plot and there was just so much and i i think some of it was like just escalation over time these games as they keep coming out have to like yeah. one up themselves with you know how over the top like these plots are that's part of it i think also part of it is like once they you know they started with the game we're talking about now phoenix right ace attorney and then you know they've branched out and they've had you know sequels and spinoffs and all that and prequels and i think they have to I think the games actually do an excellent job with this, with generally not contradicting facts they've established. Like, I think I have a ton of respect for that. Like, the amount of care that goes into storyboarding out, you know, all these cases so that, um, unlikely though they may be, um, that there's no true, like, plot holes or anything. And and I think they might have done, like, a little bit of hand-waving here. Um, from what I remember, like, there was the body in this murder case that was like removed from the scene. And then Von Karma like presented this autopsy report that indicated like the body was still there and they never actually found the body. But 
then they do like a little bit of hand waving where it's like unclear if von karma like i don't think he actually forged this i think like other things went on behind the scenes that it's similar to like what happens later in apollo justice where phoenix Wright ends up presenting faulty evidence that was you know forged without his knowledge but then it's like i feel like if Phoenix Wright lost his like law license for that, like maybe Von Karma should have faced like a harsher penalty than just like. So, it sounds like in the inherited turnabout, uh, <laughs> it's kind of left ambivalent whether or not Von Karma actually fabricated evidence. Yeah. Whereas in Apollo Justice, we we know we experience it. We you play as Phoenix as he presents. Okay. forged evidence you know we know that that was forged evidence in that case yeah um so i think what it is is in the case of apollo justice the court knew that phoenix <laughs> was presenting forged evidence and there was evidence to support that which yeah. is why phoenix lost his uh license uh to practice law whereas yeah. in the inherited turnabout it's left a bit more ambivalent whether or not von karma actually presented uh forged evidence which yeah. is why he's still allowed to practice law even after that case. Ah, man, so this is another example of exactly what I was saying. I do appreciate. Yeah. Like, it, and you know what? Listen, if we keep doing this podcast long enough, eventually we'll get to this case. We'll get there. <laughs> the inherited turnabout, and I'm very much looking forward to that. But I think you are right, and I think that was intentional. And as I was going through this case, I'm like, wait, who is this other detective they mentioned that was in charge of the initial investigation? And I think... There were some reasons they made the thing convoluted that were unrelated to that. I think in this case, with the whole like autopsy report and the body they never recovered. Yeah, I think they I think they made it convoluted there so that they could do just enough hand waving that like it's not clear that Von Karma yeah. like actually forged the thing. Okay. But it was still a blow to his perfect record. It was. So the judge kind of wagged the finger at him. <laughs> so and that's exactly it from the inherited turnabout all the way back to turnabout goodbyes. Uh, <laughs> that is kind of why Manfred may have a grudge against uh, Gregory, right? That's yes. that's kind of how that trial between the two of them went. Yeah. Um, Gregory lost. Manfred got a penalty. Uh, <laughs> the last thing we could ask Grossberg about is about his thoughts on Prosecutor Von Karma. Wait, do we talk about how, how um, Von Karma took a vacation after that uh, penalty? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. I mentioned that, that after he gets one penalty and then he went off on a several month long vacation to, I guess, brood or whatever, you know, to yeah. to be a salty bitch. So uh, I guess and that's Phoenix where even questions that he's like, oh, hold on. If Von Karma was so intent on like maintaining his perfect record, why would he like take a vacation for so long? And it's like more on that later. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we can ask Grossberg about Von Karma. Grossberg says that he suspects that Von Karma knows about Edgeworth's accident, right? Mm -hmm. That he accidentally killed his father, supposedly. Yeah. And he suspects that Von Karma is going to press that detail mm -hmm. in court. Yeah. Um. So that's that sounds pretty rough if he plans on exposing that in court, that a young Miles Edgeworth accidentally killed his father. I, yeah. So that, that's just something we'll have to keep in mind for the next trial. Um, <laughs> one thing that I do just wonder about is that, um, you know, after after that trial, right, um, after the yeah. trial where Gregory Edgeworth died, Von Karma took in Miles Edgeworth and basically raised him, right? Yeah. Um, and 
it seems like, you know, Von Karma orchestrated this whole plot to frame Miles for murder, right? <laughs> and to me, it's not really clear why he's motivated to take down his own apprentice at this stage. Yeah, maybe this is just like part of his like perfect revenge plot or like again yeah it's not you know like he had this grudge against gregory edgeworth and now like he's gonna you know like torture his son for like years and like frame him for like his father's murder i don't know or yeah i i genuinely don't remember if we get clarification on that it could be because over the past two trials turnabout sisters and turnabout uh samurai maybe (laughs) he has seen Miles Edgeworth start to oh. tend back towards this softer, gentler sort of way of practicing law. Maybe he's yeah. seeing his apprentice tend to act like uh, Gregory. Like you've gone he, soft. I like legitimately. I think that might be it. Right. You know, that's um. I I don't. That's not. I don't think they ever actually say that in any of the games. But that is a really interesting yeah. theory. I like that. Now we do get a little bit more to support that. In the next Kate, in the next uh, scene. Wait, wait, so, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. I just, I have one thing before before we leave the Grossberg law offices. Yeah. So this is when, you know, Grossberg says that, oh man, I think you know Von Karma's going to press this point that you know um, Miles Edgeworth like was the one who was responsible for the death of his father. You know, when they were trapped in this elevator, and Grossberg has a line. That I that I take issue with. He says, okay. he goes, even even accidental murder is murder, you know. Here's why I call shenanigans on this. Yanni Yogi was put on trial for the murder of Gregory Edgeworth, and he was found not guilty due to temporary insanity. He was not fit to stand trial due to the oxygen deprivation of being trapped in this elevator. young Miles Edgeworth was in the same elevator. Wouldn't he be subject to the same rules? Like, why in the world would a court find Miles Edgeworth guilty if they found this, like, grown-ass adult not guilty? Yeah. I, I, you, couldn't you also use the insanity plea for the 10-year-old child who was for sure oxygen-deprived? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, when Grossberg says that, I don't know if he's making a point from a legal perspective that murder is still yeah. murder and Edgeworth can be, you know, sentenced for that, or if he means yeah. it from a more literal sense, that even killing someone on accident is still being responsible for their, their death, and that this would still haunt Edgeworth emotionally, even if it was accidental. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. I think they're anyway. trying to like establish the stakes here, but it's, yeah. if you examine it too closely, you're like, what? What? Yeah. He, anyway, he tells us to go to the police department. Yeah. He says to, to check the uh, records for information uh-huh. on DL6. So we do. And yes. uh, when we reach the criminal affairs department, we find that all the police officers, including Gumshoe, are busy looking uh-huh. for Yogi. And yes. weirdly, Von Karma is in the records room right now, which... Yeah, uh-oh. the plot thickens. That's interesting that he's where all of the legal records for DL6 are being held. But first, yeah. gotta check in with our detective friend, the guy sitting at the computer. Yes. Oh my god, I was gonna... <laughs> if, if you didn't point that out, I was going to. And I, I felt bad because I was like, oh my god, we have this like dramatic tension that's building up as we just learn uh, no. all these details about... We, you know, we gotta check in on our image training friend, for sure. 
Uh, so he's sitting at the computer saying, so, uh, what are your hobbies? Well, uh-huh. I like to do stakeouts now and then. And Phoenix yeah. supposes he is doing image training for a first date. Holy shit, I that's so funny. I love this running gag so much. Oh my God. Holy shit, that's so funny. It's excellent. I, I, I do. I'm sorry. I do love the progression of him doing image training for like pretty sensible things like doing an arrest or interrogating yeah. a criminal. And then each each scene, his image training gets more absurd. We have him yeah. image training for a dramatic death, and now we have him image training for a first date. It's really yeah. funny. It's it's very good. Yeah, this and I love too that like this is one of those like blink and you'll miss it kind of like inside oh, yeah. jokes, right? Because of course, like, you know, after learning what we just learned, like the you know natural like instinct would be to go directly to like the evidence room. But if you, you know, happen to examine this detective, you get a pretty funny interaction. I appreciated that. Yeah, I do too. But we do that. We do do that. Okay. We we check in with our friend and we go to the records room. Mm-hmm. And um, we hit up the records room and uh, yeah, Von Karma is there. And he mm-hmm. is clearing out evidence. And yeah, he is looking at us with his gross front facing sprite. I was wondering. <laughs> I knew you were going to point that out. He is looking at us with his nasty, nasty, front-facing, first-person shooter-ass, doom-ass looking sprite. He looks like a ghoul. <laughs> he looks like a ghoul. Like, honestly, I gotta say, the, like, 45-degree uh-huh. angle we, we view him during trials, yeah. much more flattering. He oh, looks yeah, like must, a fucking fish. That must fish. be the good side we were viewing. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But yeah, he's in the room. He's very clearly just cleaning out evidence, right? Yeah. And when Maya and Phoenix, uh, you know, uh, 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 approach him, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't even remember them, right? He doesn't well, even remember who on. they are. He says, he says, how do you know my name? Have we met? And they're like, yeah. what? Like, we're, you see us every day in court. We're Miles Edgeworth's defense team, which like, come on, Von Karma. You obviously know who they are. He's like nagging you like you're not important enough to remember. Yeah. yeah, there's no way in hell he sincerely meant that. He's just being a fucking ass. Yeah. Um, yeah, he says, I rarely remember defense attorneys. They are like bugs to me. So we get a weird moment. Like, I don't know if it feels weird to me where you're <laughs> able to just pick dialogue options with Von Karma. That does seem a bit odd. It, it almost like yeah no i I like it i i like no i like it it's like unsettling it's like he is he's an intimidating guy and you've always seen him in the context of a trial and now he's just there standing in front of you it feels like like standing outside the room to a video game boss or something like i don't know there's just there's something vaguely intimidating about it so we can uh we can ask him about edgeworth right and uh, he says something interesting that kind of supports my thought that he's trying to punish Edgeworth for going soft, right? Go on. He he says Edgeworth is, quote, a romanticist who could never shed that veneer of amateurism, just uh, like his father, always yeah. second rate. I, I definitely wrote that down when yeah. he compared him to his father. Jeez. Uh, it's, so such, it's, it's such a... It's such it, a good line, right? It is. Yeah, because, you know, um, Von Karma definitely has an axe to grind with both um, Miles and Gregory Edgeworth. Yeah. 
I I love it because he describes Edgeworth as being like. Oh wow! They even said that. <laughs> I think yeah. Phoenix used that same phrase. You had an axe to grind with. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it because um, he he describes Edgeworth as being like his father, which yeah. is all Edgeworth ever wanted. Edgeworth yeah. wanted to be like his father as a little boy. That was his biggest aspiration, and now yeah. here. You know, Von Karma is confirming that, that he has become like yeah. his father. But it's such a cool line because Von Karma is using that as a dig, as an insult, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel so like I, I agree with the first part, but not the second rate. Like, Edgeworth is just like his father, but he's definitely not second rate. Neither of I, them are. Right. I agree. I agree. It's like one of those things where it's like, I agree with what you're saying, but you're like saying it from the wrong direction. I, I don't know. I just think it's such a, it's a great line that both... Yeah confirms information about Edgeworth and also yeah. about Von Karma. So yeah. I think it's really cool. No, it's so we, we can also ask him about uh, tomorrow's trial, right? <laughs> and um, basically he, he confirms that tomorrow he will be bringing up DL6. Yeah, which I was surprised about. It seems like yeah, uncharacteristic he, of him to uh, reveal he kind that. Of, he kind of says it point blank. He's like, you know, Tomorrow, Miles Edgeworth will admit his own guilt, uh, the guilt yes. of 15 years ago. So it, this is the part I was referring to earlier. This is like the monologuing where you catch the villain, like revealing yeah. his plot. Yeah. Well, he does do that. But then <laughs> Phoenix kind of does it from the reverse. Go on. To me, th- this, uh, this scene and then one other scene we'll see in trial tomorrow. This scene is the scene that I think of when I think of this case. This very last interaction. Go on. Where Phoenix presents the letter from the safe to Von Karma. Yes. It it is one of those really boneheaded moves that Phoenix probably shouldn't have done. He does this to Red White, right? He does this to Red White where he... He says, hey, look, I have the smoking gun against you right here. Yeah. And he got the shit beaten out of him by Red White. He yeah, does Red the White same thing here in the face. Right. I, I believe it actually happens with uh, D. Vasquez as well, right? With a, I, f- yeah. I forget what it was, but yeah. So he shows the letter from the safe, you know, like we uh, said, a fool, piece of Phoenix. You should have like it's... showed it to the police. You should have given this <laughs> right. directly to Gumshoe. Or hey, how about this? Hey, Phoenix, make a photocopy. Maybe scan yes. it. Oh my god. Maybe scan yeah. it, bud. Um, yeah, this piece of evidence, the one of a kind piece of evidence that pretty much confirms every single conclusion we've made over the last two days. He shows it to Von Karma and he says, This was you, wasn't it? You instructed yeah. Yanni Yogi to commit murder. And Von Karma admits to writing the letter. He's like, Yeah, it was me. I did it. He's a fool. I told him to burn it after he read it. Yeah, uh, and maybe I didn't think too much of this because um, it is one of those things where it's like within the game, this is like a necessary thing you need to do to like advance the plot. But it is such a boneheaded move by Phoenix. And and I forgot about this until you pointed out, but he does this every case. (laughs) He (laughs) confronts the villain and like basically hands them the evidence and it's like, no, save it. Like, make a photocopy, give it to the police, like, you know, reveal it in court tomorrow and, like, you know, 
bury Von Karo. I like send him to jail. But uh, well, anyway, he, uh, you're about to say what's going to happen. But uh, I'm so mad about this. Von Karma brandishes a stun gun at the two of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. I love this scene. So, so brandish- which, sprite, which sprite is more terrifying, the front-facing Von Karma or front-facing Von Karma with the stun gun? Oh, with the stun gun, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, because I even wrote down in my notes, he has, like, the, the when he has, takes up the stun gun, he has this, like, creepy half-smile, and I'm just like, oh, Von Karma. He's yeah, a good villain, though. He's a good villain, and this scene, yeah, he, he shoots Phoenix and and Maya with a stun gun, 600,000 volts course through their body. <laughs> so, yeah, we get, we get the details right because this is important. So, um, okay. I think Maya kind of dives at him and she gets the stun gun first, right? I uh, I think that's right, yeah. yeah and then, and then, um, and then he uses, then Von Karma uses the stun gun against Phoenix like a minute later, which, yeah, ah, this annoyed me because they've got him outnumbered and apparently they both got like overpowered by this old man i'm just like ah, man it again pay. again i know it's necessary to have him to advance the plot he has to like you know take the letter from you because otherwise actually no shot but like how long does it take to reload a stun gun no i don't know I mean, like, okay hold on stun guns don't they shoot like they shoot needles into the person mm-hmm. and they're attached yeah. to the gun by a uh, cable right and then the gun itself has a battery, right, that transmits the shock through the cables, through the needles into the person's body. So between the time he shot Maya, wouldn't he have had to extract the needles, reset the gun, and then shoot it again at Phoenix? Well, none of that matters because Ace Attorney isn't about the law or even reality. Or even reality. Or, or alternate theory Von Karma is such a perfectionist that he oh, yeah. carried a spare stun gun in there case the first one misfired or in case he encountered two people. There, he's dual wielding them like Halo, like needle guns or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, I will. I will actually capitulate to that. I think that sounds right. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, he's dual wielding stun guns and he just blasts both of them. Um I, I do, I love his lines. He says the stun gun is for self-defense, usually. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. he says, people don't die from it, usually. Yeah. They're they're great lines. They're great lines. He is he is fantastic in this scene. So anyway, yeah, uh, our duo gets... chewing the scenery, you're right. Von Karma's... Yeah. I hate him so much, but that's why he's a good villain, because you like love yeah. to hate this character. Like, I gotta give it to him. Anyway, what were you gonna say? <laughs> um... Yeah, so the, our, our duo, they, they get knocked unconscious, and when they wake up, of course, the letter is gone, the DL6 <laughs> evidence is gone, uh, yeah. you know, they're kind of back to square one. Really, that letter is the only evidence we even got during today's trial, honestly. Yeah. Um, Maya is feeling really down. She's feeling really low at this point because, you know, she tried to jump him, but still got knocked out, and she yeah. thinks she's not a good lawyer, not a good medium. Uh, you know, she can't even call her sister. She feels really bad. But she did manage to wrest one thing from Von Karma. Oh, man. Here we go. It, the, the, one, the one piece of evidence she managed to kind of snatch away from Von Karma in this struggle, right, is a bullet 
labeled yes. a DL6 incident. Evidence number seven, taken from the heart of Gregory Edgeworth. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. The bullet yeah. from Gregory Edgeworth. Holy shit. That's yeah. come a long way. That's yeah. gone on a 15 year journey and oh now my Maya has it. So yeah. that, I love that. I think that's like, it's such a good ending because it's like, yeah, this is a super big L, right? This is yeah. a big loss for our team because we lost the letter. We lost any of the evidence on file. Yeah. But it's just this one, this one little, little victory, this one little thing they've got. Oh, it's so yeah. huge. It's, it, I agree, man. This scene, it's like, it's so, it's simultaneously so frustrating that you essentially have to, you know, take this very incriminating piece of evidence, this letter, which, you know, you can directly tie to um, Manfred von Karma, like the true mastermind here. Like, we know it's his handwriting. Like, you know, if you still had this letter, just like present this first thing in court and it's like game over. Of yeah. course, they're not going to make it that easy. So you essentially have to go through this whole rigmarole where, you know, you, you know, have this altercation where he, you know, Von Carver uses the stun gun on you and takes the letter, which you're never going to see again. Uh, but you have one last glimmer of hope. This bullet killed Gregory Edgeworth 15 years ago. Oh my God. They, they're setting us up perfectly for this tomorrow what's going to be you know the final day in court i absolutely love this yeah and that's that's it that's the end of our investigation day three yeah so yeah i i agree with you i do love this i i think it's a great way to end the investigation <laughs> um we know that von karma will be bringing up dl6 tomorrow but we are yeah. we still don't have the whole story there are still there's still one central question that hangs around yeah. this whole case and that question is, did Miles really kill his own father? Yeah, we still don't know at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's sort of the central mystery that we we, ha we have to solve one way or another. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah, it's a great way to, to end this investigation and a great way to end this podcast episode because we only, we know that due to the three-day trial limit tomorrow, um, it was going to be the final day. So we've set ourselves up... Uh, and I'm very excited because we're going to have a lot to discuss next episode. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to discuss. Yeah, so n the next episode will be the final episode of Turnabout Goodbyes and really the final episode of the original Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Of course, we will be covering... The Turnabout Podcast. We are <laughs> retiring. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yep, goodbye. Uh, now, we'll, we'll cover Rise from Ashes, but as we know, that was added in the DS localization uh, later. <laughs> Right after yeah. the original run of the Game Boy Advance version, but I yeah, mean, I so keep continuing. I want to. I want to cover future games. I want to cover uh, the crossover with Professor Layton. Yeah, we. Well, you know, we've got to go until we finish uh, Turnabout Secession. Obviously, yes. right? Fuck. I'm uh -huh. sorry. The Inherited Turnabout. Yeah, yeah. Turnabout Secession is from Apollo Justice. That's a different one. Don't at me. Um, but yeah, so you know what? I think this is a good place to end it. I think this is a good place to end it. We got one more ep in us. We got one more part in us after this. But for now, this one is for the books. What do you say, Mish? I think this was a successful episode. I think we did it. We, all we right. did it. We discussed an ace attorney. What? Against all odds. So where yeah. can people find you? You can find me streaming on Twitch. And also you can find me on Instagram and Reddit and 
maybe other platforms, and I am Mish Cosplay on all of the things. Is M is in Maya Ish Cosplay. What about you, Abby? Where can people find you? You can find me at Abersary, that's A-B-E-R-R-S-A-R-Y on all of the places, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Pinterest, Tumblr, all of the places. Um, and you know what? I don't talk about this often. I have another set of social media for style and fashion under Abby underscore Aether that you could also find on all of the places. Just check out the show notes. It's in there. Also, big Big ol' shout out to Hey Recanti uh, for our album art, for our thumbnail art. Uh, it is super beautiful, and it uh, sparks joy in me every time I look at it. You can find Recanti on Twitter at... It is Hey Recanti, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, awesome. <laughs> I, I, there, I had a moment of doubt where I'm like, that is that is her handle, right? Okay, fantastic. She's great. She is wonderful. She's um, wonderful. She, she's also very funny on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, she's Misha's girlfriend. Um, but all right, I don't, think don't, don't uh, tell her she's funny on Twitter. Don't encourage her. I'm no, I I'm gonna keep liking her posts. Actually, I'm gonna start <laughs> liking them twice on my other accounts. <laughs> um, but all right, that's that has been our show. Um, ha- uh, have have a good day, and remember. You don't have a bit, I'm, do you? I don't. I was trying. Oh, we each I, had one in the opening and I got nothing. No, I like to end with a... Hold on. I, I literally don't know. I literally don't remember if I used this one at the end of either of the previous two episodes. Okay. But I'll just use it, okay? It doesn't matter. Ha- have a great day. And remember, don't don't get shot in the heart with a bullet because that won't make you fall in love it'll just kill you all right later goodbye bye bye everyone we bye 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 Chandler was telling me about her paranormal activity at Kroger. Go on. <laughs> Basically, she was getting uh, her groceries checked out, and then there was a giant laser light show all throughout the aisle, <laughs> and then all the power went out. Oh. And she just stood there for 15 minutes like, uh, she's like, so, uh, that this is pretty weird, huh? And the, and, and the, the cashier is like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they just had small talk That's for a, a little reaction. bit. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the power came back on and they were good. How nice.